All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How do you do, everyone? My name is... And this is the Bloody Disgusting Network. The succeeding show will fill you with dread. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. constant listeners and welcome yet again to the losers club a stephen king podcast from consequence of sound this is your good friend and uh at least for the round of this episode's the leader because i'm stuttering uh randall colburn you did a pretty good job there without the stutters though yeah i actually i forgot to do it you're uh, old, you're old randall colburn <laughs> yeah i choose not to uh do do it again ah. was that good mm-hmm. i'm not gonna do stutters <laughs> It's, it seems wrong. It really it is. Okay. Uh, I apologize uh, for that. And um, uh, you're no, I may be your fearless leader, but I don't get it right all the time. So we're here, we're back, and we're ready to talk about it. Before we do it, though, I just want to take a moment. I usually do this at the end of the episode, but I think sometimes we have better success when I do it now. And that's to say, while you're fresh, your ears are ready, please leave us a review on iTunes. Just take a moment. Just pause it right now. Go leave us a review. Five-star review. If you're going to give us anything less than five, then don't do it. Uh, and no, 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 no. No. Be this honest. Is, this is how we run things oh, in, in, Stutter, honest, right? <laughs> in Stutter and Randall's uh, Losers Club. No, uh, please leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And go like us on social media platforms if you haven't already. Our content, I just think it's A+. I think it's A+. Plus. Personally, I would give it five stars. I would give it five Brett Red Pretty Wise Clown Noses. So sure. uh, I think that I think our, our social game is on point. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I emphasize this on many episodes. Fresh content on every social media platform. Quality, quantity, the whole You're thing. You're not just getting cut and paste. No. You got different get- losers posting different things on different platforms, different perspectives, different voices. The, it's, you know, it's truly a wealth of, of content. If you just want facts, go to Wikipedia. Yeah, you can go to Wikipedia. We don't do facts. We don't no. traffic in facts. We, we, we lie, start, cheat, we, we lie, cheat, steal. We start dialogues. That's part of this crew? Yes. yes. We're a little bit edgier than the Losers Club of, of yore, let's nice just say. When we tie our hands together. <laughs> so my Leave name it. is Stuttering Randall Colburn. I'm a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. Uh, and this is a Consequence of Sound podcast, which is why that is relevant. Mm-hmm. And uh, who is sitting across from me? 
this is Aisha, Yellow Peeper Bloomers. <laughs> uh, oh, shit. What's my last name? Gadsden. That's what your last name is. <laughs> oh, have I not said it before? No, no, I'm just kidding. Oh. Uh, and so, Aisha, you, were, you joined us for the first time last week. Is that correct? That is correct. But you're with us for the rest of this. You're mm-hmm. riding it out. Yes. I'm sad I have to miss the adaptations. Yes. But, but yeah. this is your first time reading the book. Yes. Which is very exciting. Is I, it? Totally have no idea what's going on. Yeah, that's the thing is Aisha's still in progress with it. And I think the rest of us on this episode have all read it. So Aisha's kind of got that fresh eyes perspective, which I think is very vital when we're discussing these things. And who is sitting next to Aisha? Justin Juniper Hill. Justin. Ooh. Ooh. Twice with the Justin. I got excited. (laughs) Alliteration. I will call my, we'll give myself the last name of Gerber. Also a um, contributor at Consequence of Sound. And, you know, I've read this book a couple times in the past, but... I'm kind of reading it as the parts go on. So I just started part five. Nice. So yeah, these, these are all relatively fresh as well. For it's me. fresh. And then who is joining us uh, uh, oh, long distance? Uh, this is Dan Moose Sadler. Yes. Cassidy. I don't know. I just want, <laughs> I wanted to pick a, a really wow. um, insubstantial character. Uh, I love Moose. But, Who's uh, the other character? Pete Gordon or something? Pete Gordon. Yeah. I'm actually, they're, they're, they are actually kind of interesting characters. I mean, they're not in the book very long. Well, that's one I, of the I, things I love about this is that there's like auxiliary bullies, just like there was auxiliary losers that, uh, who is that kid who like tried to join and they were just like, he's not part of oh, this. Oh, you know what? I don't have him in my notes here, but I want to make a big deal about him from, from the earlier parts. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. He reminds me of the guy who replaced John Travolta on Welcome Back Hot <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. You know? Did did when they replaced him? Because I don't. I used to watch Welcome Back Hotter, yeah, but yeah. it's been a long time. They, he wasn't like the new Vinny Barbarino. No, he was like he had this a new name, vanilla kind of country guy, blonde oh, okay. hair. I mean, you never saw the actor again. It was that, yeah. it was that tough. Uh, Dan, how are you today? Uh, I'm great. I'm great. Uh, I just had my parents in town, and we had uh, other family members in town last weekend. So uh, it's been a full house at the Catberg household. What can I say? Much like one of my favorite uh, shows from the '90s, and Justin's too, right? You you love. Or Dan, you like Fuller House better, oh, right? I will say I've seen 40 <laughs> times as many episodes of Fuller House than I have Full House. Wait a minute. Holy shit. Yeah, here we go. Listeners, way. this is If you huge, like our tangents, get ready. This is a bombshell. Yeah. This is a bombshell. Here's the thing. Justin is 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 one of the most fastidious TV watchers I know. <laughs> this guy no phones out while watching. He he watches oh, yeah. serious cinema, serious TV. Yet this For man serious people. has watched every episode of Fuller House, oh the God. reboot on Netflix. Yet and now I've just learned you weren't even a fan of the original. Well, let me full disclosure. When you're watching the show Fuller House, I hope we're playing the music in the background. Mm-hmm. It's so incredible in its awfulness. Like everything is a misstep. Yeah. So it's incredible to watch it for, you know, 22, 23 minutes at a time and just, and like the forced laugh tracks and the performances <laughs> yeah. are kind of off. And then it's still somewhat like, I almost somewhat problematic at times. It's like, it just seems like it was literally just transported from 1992 mm-hmm. to now. It's, mm-hmm. it's very it's weird. It's painful to watch. Yeah. I couldn't get past it. I'm going to say the masochist. So that's I, wild. That's what was my question. I just can't believe I'm, that you I'm like a fan pa- of I'm the like, original. I'm like Paul Bettany and Da Vinci Code over here with the Fuller House episodes, babe. Oh, is he? Oh, because he was—he was—he he flagellated himself. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Speaking so, of dated references, that was my Dennis Miller. Reference. I was gonna say. Well, there was a lot of dated references. You got Da Vinci Code references, oh, and not yeah. even the book, which is timeless. Yeah. Uh, you've got the movie. <laughs> you've got the movie. You got a Paul Bettany reference. Oh, in the, in Bettany. Thing. All right, anyway, sorry, I, but we digress. We digress. Sorry, you should please, definitely watch. Please Fuller don't House give us Netflix. a one-star review because because of our Fuller House tangent. Uh, we're ready to talk about it, baby. Yeah, uh, Dan. It's glad to have you back. This is your first time back since the first episode. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time. I, I 
I've been able to be on the show a lot more than I have this year, and it's it's always great. I, I love hearing your guys' voices, and uh, I love talking some Stephen King. So I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> like, you you sound like a there? celebrity yeah, guest. Like, <laughs> did your agent give you that script? Yeah. <laughs> your PR yeah, rep. Was very well put Don't together. talk about your politics. Don't talk about your sex scandal. Speaking of sex scandals, we've got a few in this section. We sure do. Uh, But we're not there yet. We're going to begin with, because we are on part four today, which is July of 1958, which is a pivotal month for the losers, I'd say. Um, If you're going by the real calendar, that's a little over 60 years ago. Wow. Mm. I guess it stands to say that these losers would be very old if they were alive today. I hope they were. most of them are alive today. (laughs) I mean, I guess they'd be about... King's age, right? Yeah, yeah, they'd be about King's age. Mike Hanley will outlive us all. It's true, it's true. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! So uh, there's a lot of really iconic it moments that happen in this section. Like, Mm. the stuff that I'd say that I really remember from because there with this book it was it was always kind of a you know I read it twice when I was young and then I didn't read it for many many years and I'm I'm like uh, you Justin and that I am um, I'm probably about halfway through part five right mm-hmm. now and so I still I remember the ending in broad strokes but not the the nitty-gritty of it and it's been wild to kind of you know, go back in and remember how it all exactly plays out. Because for so long, I only remembered sort of really pivotal moments, really broad, uh, huge moments. And one of them, the smoke hole, I'd say probably is is what resonated maybe more than anything weirdly uh, for me. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. But this begins with uh, the apocalyptic rock fight. And this is, I think, a really and, – and, and the way we're doing this, listeners, if you've listened to our last couple episodes, we're kind of using our heroes and villains section, which, we're, uh, which we've just entered into, mm-hmm. to um, also use a sort of a synopsis, a recap of uh, the, what we're discussing today, but also to talk about how the characters are evolving because we're learning so much about them as we go on through each one. And we actually do meet some uh, crazy characters this time around. I don't know if Patrick Hockstetter is crazy. Uh, I guess I guess we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, he's just a misunderstood kid. He's a little kid, and so uh, <laughs> that's the thing is he is a little kid, which is really weird. But uh, but I guess like this section, especially the apocalyptic rock fight, is interesting because when I was talking to a good friend of mine who is a fan of the book, and we were talking about the the 2017 film, and I was saying, you know, I re- overall I really like it, and she was like, you know, she's like, just what they really fucked up for me was the rock fight, yeah. and mm-hmm. she's like, because it's such a big deal in the book, and the th- I wasn't at the rock fight when she told me that by the time I'd read it. And um, I was actually on my way to Mexico. I was reading on the plane Mm. and I was reading the rock fight and I turned to my wife and I just said, you know, it's like this thing is so like the way it's written, the stakes of it are so high and it like, it resonates like so powerfully the way this whole section is written that I totally understood that she had reread it recently. And, you know, and I remember thinking it was fine in the, um, in the movie, but it's like, it is almost impossible, I think, to capture the intensity of it on screen because it's played out like a gunfight, you know, like in the book, it's so intense. Like there's actual real life and death stakes here. And it's also just this meeting, this kind of square, off that you've been waiting for for so long. So um, what was the experience like reading this rock fight? Well, I don't know about you, H, but I, I had, I'd seen the miniseries years ago, which I think they actually did a little bit of a, of a better job mm-hmm. when it comes to the rock fight. It's a little more gravitas. I think so, emotion. yeah. Makes it a little more epic, I think. But it is hard to touch the way that this is written. Like you said, this is given the, this is given the respect of like a, a, like a battle scene yeah. in a war movie, you know? Yeah. And it just shows 
where the where all the kids are at this point. Henry's mental state, the losers finally finally becoming the losers club here too. Yep. This is when Mike officially becomes a loser. And I think that's a really important part of it too. Is mm-hmm. that they make the Mike integration here work so well? Yeah. Because I remember in the I will say in the new movie. I, it's kind of just suddenly like Mike's there and he's with them. And, <laughs> and it's, one scuffle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and then here, I think in the book, the, the, there's a, a meta sort of awareness to it yeah. that, cause then, cause they get kind of into the next thing where Mike just shows up and he's not sure if he's going to be friends, like if they're going to want to hang out with him. Well, there's a great line. Yeah. I, I can't remember who says it, but you know, they're all like saying, you know, I, I love you, Bev. I love you. You know, yeah. thanks for everything. Oh, yeah. But, and then I think. I, maybe it's Richie that says, you know, I don't know you well enough no, to love you, Mike. but I love you anyway. It yeah, that's great. And I, so exactly. That touches on that. And for me, I don't know if it felt this is one of those things that's misery in both um, word process, processor of the God for me for King is that like sometimes he has these like long drawn out like buildups that just bore me. Yeah. And then other times like this rock fight, like I know what's coming and I'm like, tr- like, I wanted to rush through the pages because, like, it was he was building that anticipation of, like, Mike, which I won't get into details now, but basically Mike getting chased and then, like, everything that's leading them every step, moment by moment to that point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. them even just talking about, like, Mike and integrating him slowly into the system of, like, the whole experience from the rock fight to the smoke hole. Yeah. And onward. And you slow, and that's when you get to the part where he was like, I guess I love you too. Yeah. yeah. I don't really know you, but I guess we're all here. Cause that's, and then King keeps reiterating that like completion of seven. Yeah. It happens so often. It's like, okay, stop beating me in the head with it. Right. But it was, I like the scene. Dan, what was it like to revisit the rock fight on this read of it? Um, you guys touched on it a little bit already, but I think it gives some insight into just how far um, uh, Henry Bowers has fallen mentally. Yeah. Because, it, the, I mean, obviously the rock fight itself is a huge event and Mike joining, joining and all of that. But the thing that struck me this time around was the fact that the other bullies are starting to sense just how crazy he's gotten and how obsessive he's gotten. And the fact that they don't feel quite comfortable venturing into this rock fight. They do anyway, of course. But that was like what I, I I didn't register just as much as when I was a kid. Also, just because I'd seen the miniseries. Also, the rock fight in the book is just so much more violent than it is yes. in, the, oh, yeah. in the movie. Like it's kind of crazy the wounds they're describing. Um, but, but then again, I, I mean, I don't know, if you're throwing jagged pieces of, of gravel at each other as kids, you're you're gonna hurt each other like that. Um, right. Yeah, and Taisha's point about about. Uh, this sort of coincidental writing King does a lot in this book where he talks about uh, fate and everything. I like it here. Um, but by the end of the novel, I do get a little tired of like, Oh, we have to point out every time something is connected. He does that in the stand a lot, a lot too. Yeah. I feel like. um, is Hank barking? Yeah, hold on. What no, is no, 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 it's, it's fine. natural. It's natural. I'm just like, what is yeah. Hank's problem? You're like a, you're like a shotgun blast. <laughs> <laughs> we got Cujo on our hands over here. <laughs> you, probably, you probably found a squirrel or something like that. I'll, uh, I'll mute it when I'm not talking. Oh, no, 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 it's all good. I, I think to Dan's point, I, I think I think uh, we do actually get some shades of like Victor and Belch here that I find really interesting. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I love character-wise here is that uh, King draws the sharp distinction of Henry's descent sort of into madness by sh- by uh, actually framing Belch and Victor in a very childlike sense, which I feel like he doesn't do too often. What I love here is that Victor and Belch, like, they 
they're excited to play with firecrackers. Yeah. Like, and it's a very genuine childlike kind of thing. Like, cause he's like, oh, if you help my dad over at the farm and the kids hate to do that cause they're scared of his dad, he's like, then we can play with firecrackers. And I love that because it's like such a childlike thing. And I feel like up to this point, those they've been framed as just being these kind of mean bullies. But there we get to say, oh, they just want to play too. Yeah. yeah. You know? It almost made me, for a lot of times when I envision them, I envision them as like, I know they're preteens, but yeah. still like older teenagers. Like I see them just like in my mind visually bigger than the losers. Definitely. Like, but they are the same or similar age. I know some of them are held back, but like you said, it's like that's still childlike. Yeah. Those different things that they say or that they're interested like lighting their farts on fire. <laughs> yes. Like, that's such a childlike thing. And I'm sure there's plenty of adults who still Oh, still do that. <laughs> I know some of them. Well, I think King here is also trying to make sure that we understand that Henry is something different. Yeah. Um, you know, Belch and Victor and all the other bullies that we kind of meet along the way, yeah. with the exception of our good friend Patrick Hoxie, <laughs> yeah. there's never a moment where they're, where, where they're all in on Henry's plans. Right. There's always either a moment where we get a little bit of insight in their own brains where they're very hesitant, yeah. or they'll outwardly say, you know, I don't know, Henry. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, these are still, like you said, like, like preteens or early teens. Yeah. Well, Victor especially, like he's the one who... Uh, King kind of gets in his head the most in terms of how much he's coming to distrust and uh, be kind of scared. Mm -hmm. And he uses the phrase too far in all caps. He's like, Henry's going to go too far as our good friend friend (laughs) Billy Crystal would say. (laughs) Too far. I think that's interesting too, because then also is that like the connection of why Vic is the one that appears to Henry and Mm Julia Hill too. Is it because he was like, the, it's weird. Like that was his voice of reason, even though he paid no attention to it at all. Yeah. So is that like is, what connection is that? Is that no connection at all? It just happened to be Vic, or like? Well, Victor ended up being the one who scored the most damage during the rock fight. They mm-hmm. said because he was the one who was almost in a way least invested because yeah. he was just kind of like, look, man, I'm just in this uh, at this point for self preservation. He's mm-hmm. like, I don't even give a shit about these kids anymore. And so that to me, it actually. Um, it gave it gave a little bit more pathos to Belch and Victor, um, especially because, you know, now I'm at the part in, in part five where there's a lot with um, with the bullies and with where, you know, I'd say that Henry is going too far. Yes. And Belch and Victor, Victor are still with him. And I think that is very interesting to me because I think in the same way that the losers are kind of bound together, I think that trio is bound together because we, we always get these other losers like even Patrick and then Moose and then this guy Pete Gordon. And the thing is they're like Pete Gordon like bails immediately on the rock fight because he's like, he's like, I don't even hang out with these kids yeah. usually. He's like, I don't know these guys. Yeah, it's like, and so, but at the same time there is this kind of weird devotion and Henry's really got these kids under his thumb even if they don't really trust him and I think that just is another thing in this book that I think really speaks to uh, child bonds that um, are so prevalent you know in King's work but also especially in it. Even though if you feel it's toxic for you you still want to be a part of it because you want to belong to something even if it's a loser club. Yeah. And I won't get into that because we'll talk about Eddie later but like that (laughs) kind of realization is, is shown there. And I think it's interesting what you're saying because, like, kids will do, will endure anything mm-hmm. to just belong to something. Like, I remember doing that as a kid as much as I'd like to forget those Oh, points. sure, yeah. But, you know, it's it's interesting how much a verbal abuse, because immediately if they dissented, he came at them with, like, your little shit or blah, 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 mm-hmm. or, like, I'll kick your ass, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. So, the like, like you said, the power dy- dynamics between 
them as well. It's yeah. Interesting. Something I've noticed in not just this book, but a lot of King books is I feel like there's always the lead bully yep. and his minions. Yep. Especially with Christine. Yeah. With Buddy Repertin and his little crew. <laughs> He's got a whole crew. I, I wonder if that's saying something else just about society too. If we, if I could put my psych 101 uh, hat on for a moment here, because the, I feel like the, the quote unquote good guys. Yeah. In these books, are always trying to just band together as a true group, mm-hmm. as an ensemble. Whereas the bullies, I feel like, are always gravitating towards that alpha dog asshole. Which I'll say though is why I get annoyed at the bill worship in this book. Yeah, but I I'll say that, I yeah. agree with you that it's almost you know it's you could say it's akin to like the Stu Redman. Agree. Which I mean, not not as extreme because I actually really like Stu Redman, but I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I'll say no, but I'll say this though: the losers' function is equals. Mm-hmm. In the book, the way that they all function and manifest, it's that, and that's why I don't like the bill worship because yeah. it's always, it's always verbal. It's like, it's always, uh, it's always coming. It's like more of a perceived idea yeah. than an actual manifestable thing. Mm-hmm. Like Bill is clearly like, you know, maybe quote unquote the leader, but he's not more valuable than anyone else. And he, you get like a brief glimpse into that where he's like, I don't, I hate that they are looking at me. Like yeah. this, I don't want that role. And like, I feel most people who are thrown into that role, like ha- have no idea what they're doing. They're just like. I fuck. I'm the only one that's gonna step up. Okay. Right. I mean, he has the most invested because of Georgie. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. But and that's the. I think that's the only real reason why he put he allows himself to kind of just be forced into that role because he rebels against that role so much, or he wants to, but he just knows that they're all kind of like looking to him. Well, he has the most skin in the game. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what makes it really work. Yeah. And then, and I think like with Henry though. Like, he doesn't really have skin in the game. He's just the one who is filled with the most hate. And I think we see so much of that in this chapter with, um, you know, because we get we actually get a lot more texture in this chapter before the rock fight into why uh, he hates Mike Hanlon so much. This is an example of, of King world building that I love. Yeah. Because we get a lot more into the Hanlon family and mm-hmm. the Bowers history. Butch Bowers is also a fascinating psychopath too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and just the way and it and this chapter really instilled like shows how much Butch instilled that hatred into Henry. It's all learned. Which, yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. And I think that whole idea of like the generational sort of um evolution of these people, uh, which we and this is like just another part of the brilliance of the construction of this book, because the interludes serve as that portrait of history and king is always we've talked about this in previous episodes but he's always uh pushing to show the connections between the past and the Mm -hmm. present just by the fact that it's the same families that have lived in this town over time so have field mccoy's yes and i love that i think it's so neat and uh but yeah we get such like insight into henry's home life here too Mm -hmm. and how much books butch knocks him around and just like the disrepair that their house lives in and um and yeah there's something kind of grotesque i think and maybe uh slightly one-dimensional about the way King writes it, but at the same time, I think it it, it works and it suits the character. I'm, uh, I'm excited to get to the beans, the beans oh, yeah. that him and his father <laughs> love so much. Oh, God. <laughs> that's that's the pound cake Davenport? section. <laughs> <laughs> the dad, those Davenport beans. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that... <laughs> But I think that um, I think that that's a really fascinating thing, and it's just the way that, I mean, I think that there's just something really terrifying about like, and this is something that I think resonates in kind of today's culture, especially in terms of 
um, you know, generational, the way it passes down and then the way it manifests out of a younger generation who can only process things in black and white um, because Henry's racism emerges in this chapter so, like, violently. Mm-hmm. Like, the way he speaks to Hanlon, like Mike Hanlon, is terrifying. And, like, you can tell that it makes all the other guys uncomfortable, too, because I think, like, amongst Belch and Victor, it's like, hey, casual racism, you know, whatever. It's like, it's uh, that's what we were raised with. But Henry's like... It's like a deep, ingrained hatred yeah just seeing him just seeing mike like elicits all this hatred because of like you said and it's interesting to hear this like when you read the storyline of how it developed between the two yeah and like it's that kind of idea that the the, his father could have like pulled them out of that situation it could have gone a totally different way but the hatred he already had and his laziness and his his Mental stability already at that point yep. allowed this to kind of spiral. So like you said earlier, it was learned, but it was also the environment that he mm-hmm. was in mm-hmm. as well. Like if Butch, if Butch had like turned it around yeah. and made it work, I wonder what kind of, I mean, he'd probably still be a racist. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. Like yeah. How much hatred would be like directed at. Yeah, because it's just it's like it's just that whole idea that, you know, you instill you instill it's like putting a it's like putting a bomb in in the hands of somebody who who clearly has no idea how to use it, uh, because, you know, for Henry, that bomb just explodes the moment that he sees Mike and everything comes rushing out and it mixes in with it's like that kind of racism mixes in with his penchant for just kind of, you know, bullying and like insults. And so all of that merges together in this really violent, disgusting sort of stew that um, I it's like shocking the the language that he uses and i think that that is another step that king is using there's such care that king puts into the de-evolution of that character of henry bowers and we're going to talk later about you know even just the scene when he encounters eddie later which we're going to get to outside the pharmacy um that's another step into just how dark that the character is getting which is really fascinating but you know there's actually a couple other really interesting character beats here um i was actually really moved early in the chapter when richie because we talked a lot about Richie's parents and now he seems to have a pretty good relationship with them. But man, there is like such a relatable moment when Richie talks about breaking his glasses Mm -hmm. and how mad his parents are that he Mm -hmm. broke his glasses and how he's like, it's like the, I think the only time that I remember that we see Richie actually cry because his parents like, he tells them I a bully like broke these like I was pushed and I was beaten up and his parents don't give a shit because they're like glasses are expensive yeah. we don't care that you're getting beat up don't let your glasses get broken and that and you know I'm not gonna the logic we, of that I, I know I know yeah. but the thing is like I'm not gonna get in we've, we've yeah. we discussed my childhood bullying history two episodes ago but I'll just say that like my dad was very similar in that it's like look bullying's part of life but don't let you know don't let your clothes get ruined in the process because that costs money like yeah. it's gonna they happen really see within their purview of yeah. what they have to which do. is i get it it's just kind of well, like they're just like sucks. they're like yeah you're gonna have to go through bullying but try not to make us spend more money while yeah. we go through it because mm-hmm. we're already suffering and it's Basically, like just run as fast as you can yeah exactly <laughs> run as fast as you can which mike does because like the early part of the chapter is sort of this huge chase between the bullies and mike and um and i think it's like i think this whole chapter is like written like an action movie almost, you know, no, like the chase scene. I, 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 when I read it, I almost felt like it was going on a little too long, but then I'm just like, well, he's really building that suspense. Like you mentioned, Aisha, you're like, well, there's a suspense that's being built here. I think I, there's a few chase scenes in this book. There's a, there's a big chase scene that's going to happen at the beginning of part five involving Bev. Yeah. Uh, this chase scene here. And then there's the, the, the first werewolf encounter yeah. with Richie and Bill. And like you said, like, it's almost like a joke yeah. where you feel like the joke is going on too long and now it's not funny. But when it keeps going on, it gets, it gets funny again. again. Yeah. 
Yeah. I feel like the intensity also- of those chase scenes, they, they start, they, they somehow find another gear. Yeah. Once the chase, you're like, oh my God, this chase is still happening. Whereas in usually any other piece of fiction, it's over within a page. Right. And there's something intense and never ending about that. I yeah. love. What were you going to say, Dan? Well, I think also because King does such a good job painting the geography of Derry. I don't even mean just the world building itself, but like the actual location of where streets are and where the yeah. standpipe is and where the barons are. And so every time there's a chase scene and it spans the entire town, I feel like I just enjoy seeing how Derry is connected. It just it just makes the place feel a little bit more realistic to me. Absolutely. And, and obviously their, their indifference yeah. is also really comes to the forefront too. Yeah. And I feel like it's in this section where you really start to feel comfortable in a way with the geography. Like it's all starting to really make sense. Like I kind of love, you know, the journey from say the dump to, uh, to the barons, you know, yeah. it's like, it's kind of a, a journey that you go through and we see, which is really neat. And so, um, and another huge thing that actually happens in this chapter that I didn't realize happened this early was, uh, is the first discussions of them actually reckoning with what it actually is. Mm. And they find, um, a discussion when they're bills researching the library about sort of shapeshifters or monsters that appear as one thing to somebody, but something else to somebody else. And they call it, he calls it a glamour. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's actually the first time that the ritual of Chud is brought up. And, um, and, uh, the ritual of Chud was used to defeat glamours. And so do you think that that means that uh, that is definitively what Pennywise is? Or do you think that it's more so just a way of them understanding what it is? Hmm. I'm going to go with the way of understanding. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they kind of touch on that later at the very end. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, we'll get to that point later. But there's something that uh, I don't, can't remember if it's at the end of the actual chapter or at the end of the interlude. But the idea that they like could name this thing but they just used whatever like the the eating mm-hmm. that would happen yeah like is that only because that's the fear that we can we can describe we can give words to mm-hmm. but it's something bigger than that and then when mike and i'm not gonna go into that too too, too much but like when mike and richie go and see when it comes yep. like mm-hmm. that idea of like it's we have words that can kind of circum like talk around it, but we can't still give any name to it entirely. Like we'll never fully understand yeah. what it is. And I love that. That's why it's as easy as just to refer to it as it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And I think yeah, that's I would, so neat. I would agree with that too, just with, because it's weird that they bring up the glamour because shortly later in the smoke hole section, they do pretty much confirm what it is and where it came from. But then it makes me wonder has that kind of being always been present to the point where historians and folklorians would would write it and call it a glamour? Do you know know what I mean? Like, is, right. it, is it a uh, is it a chicken or the egg kind of thing? Oh, that's um, a really interesting point. We'll we'll that, talk more about that and the smoke hole because I have yeah. a lot of thoughts and questions when we get there. Mm-hmm. Another fun moment that I want to mention here, and then we can kind of loop back to the uh, rock fight and then move on. Is um is I think such another, I was talking earlier about Victor and Belch, seeing them as children, seeing them actually function as kids who just want to play. Um, Cause I think there's a couple running themes of this part. And one of them I'd say, well, maybe not, this isn't a running theme, but a running arc that's introduced with the whole glamor discussion is the idea of how do we fight this thing? And the first question, the first point is like, well, let's fight the werewolf, you know, because they're like the werewolf is sort of maybe our our first sort of uh, the the boss we need to beat to get to the next point yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And um, so they're all about getting silver bullets, building or then it turns into the ball bearings and the slingshot. That is a huge arc that we see throughout all of these chapters. Mm-hmm. That's something that binds them together. And then there is also, um, I think, the idea of what is imagination and how can it be used for good? 
good and for bad. Like, how can it imprison you, but then also how can it save you? Mm -hmm. And we get that through, um, you know, the discussion about Eddie's inhaler. We get that uh, through, um, you know, uh, kind of the the photos and all the different moments of uh, that explore sort of the themes of imagination and um, fantasy and placebos and all those things. And one of the ways that I love that King sort of sets that up here is when they're walking through the barrens and everything and they actually do sort of a jungle safari uh, like fantasy sequence and they're all kind of playing into it. And the way – and King writes it like to a degree where he's showing that in their minds those things do exist. And like the fish, the way he writes about the piranhas, the tiger, all those things, like they actually – they're seeing them. And that I think is such a cool way of setting up this whole idea that, you know, when you are a kid, you – it's inevitable that you sort of – or your mind is open to a point where you can create these fantasies. But then – but then the kind of the rest of the thing is about how these fantasies are both the saving grace but also the, you know, the thing that um, can be a detriment to you. And – because that's what Pennywise uses against them is their own imaginations. But they also use it against Mm -hmm. him. So it, it grounds them in a way too. Yeah. It reminds you that, yeah, these are fictional characters who are going through obviously, you know, heightened extreme situations. Yeah. But there's still kids who want to play. That's the thing that's really interesting. I mean, if you go through all the parts, there's still parts where they're just, just hanging out, mm-hmm. even though they know that this monster's out there. You yeah. Know? I feel like there's a point where he even like specifically writes like, well, I know for, at one point he says for two weeks there was nothing that happened. Yeah. But, like they, he even goes into like they were playing games of guns and lasers or yep. something mm-hmm. in the, the, the barons and kind of having fun. And you forget that like for a second it kind of was jarring when it happened when I would read it because I'm like, oh, wait. Oh, I guess you can still make time to play. Like, whereas I'm like <laughs> freaking out, like we need to hurry up and find this monster and kill it. They're like, OK, let's take a break, which is kind of like. For me, as someone who's working on self-health, yeah. that's something interesting to think of, too, as what adults do versus what kids do. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. They can separate sometimes and pull themselves from one imagination to another to help them deal with like the trauma of something. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to phrase it because I was thinking about that, too. And I think that you know maybe the initial read for any adult reading this is like, how can you play right now? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, because like they do, I mean, they forget and we forget too. Like, yeah. yeah. And I think that whole idea of memories, it's interwound with that too. But I'm just also very intrigued by the whole idea of, you know, when we're an adult, we, we can't separate ourselves from certain uh, bits of trauma or um, things that we're struggling with our own anxieties and things like that. Whereas when you're a kid, you have the capacity to disappear into um, a distraction or an imagination or things like that as a way to cope. And I just think that's really neat. So um, let's talk a little bit more about the rock fight, because I just want to talk a little bit when I was reading and I was kind of thinking about, well, I'm like, well, why is it so much better here uh, than it can really manifest in the movies? And I think it just really does uh, amount to a couple different things. But one is uh, the stakes are much higher because it's not just rocks they're throwing. It's it's firecrackers. And it's like yeah. not just firecrackers. It's M80s. Like this shit will take out a huge chunk of your flesh yes. if it explodes on you. King definitely reminded you of that if you forgot at any point. Yes. Like, it was constantly mentioned. <laughs> yeah. And I think and everything, then, every, every page had a warning. Do not try it at home. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then it, I think also just the like you mentioned, it's so much more violent. Like yeah. there's so much mention of blood and um, cuts and like um, bones being bruised and things like that and uh and i absolutely love that and i think that 
that just really helps up the stakes. And like we watch very like specific moments where, you know, Henry throws the M80 at Ben and he swats it back and then Henry like rolls away and it blows up and it actually like tears off part of his shirt because the explosion is so intense. And it's like such a cool image, but also like, holy shit, like these kids could kill each other right now. Well, in addition to that, I I think the reason why a lot of times books are just playing better than an adaptation is because, first of all, you have to use your imagination, obviously, right? But second, you're getting a lot more internal monologue here. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting the internal perspectives from these kids that you're not going to get if you go see the movie. You're not going to see Ben's, you know, thinking to himself, "Oh, you've hurt this this girl who's mm-hmm. my first love." You're not going to you're not going to get that from a movie. You're yeah. just not. There'd be a lot of pausing. I oh god, like. it'll be a, it'll be like watching a David Lynch's Dune, where like <laughs> constant inner monologues going on. You know. Yeah, I think too. Um, I love that we kind of get the different corners of the fight as well. And we see sort of different people squaring off against each other. Like I love the Victor bill kind of Mm -hmm. battle because like bill actually overwhelms him. And like Victor at one point is like, he's, he almost says, I take it back. Like, which is so funny. And there, there is those moments of humor too. Like near the end, um, uh, uh, Beverly has a line that I find really powerful where she says, get out of our place. To mm-hmm. Henry and Henry responds by calling her the c word and immediate and the way it's written is almost like when you watch a movie and it's like they say something and then like off screen like ten rocks like hit him yeah. at once you know and the way it's written in that way where he he calls her the c word and immediately the losers like pelt him with rocks like we were at a truce but then you you go after Bev and we're all gonna pile on you and I have some stuff I'm sure we maybe all do in the word processor later uh, of just great moments from the rock fight I know yeah. I've got some so any other final thoughts on the rock fight you know i love it yeah yeah i enjoyed <laughs> yeah, it it's great it's a great way to kick off part four i of, think of so a, uh, this is something else i want to say about this part especially yeah um the number one comparison we can make especially in terms of length is the stand yeah and i do believe by around this part of the stand this page count we were starting to, our patience was wearing a little thin <laughs> i don't want to speak for everybody <laughs> we were all kind of there um, at that time at least, and, at least know, among I love us all losers those meetings, those, well the, the this meetings is what i'm talking about <laughs> there were a lot of Aisha, have you read the stand not yet, so I'm just enjoying this. Well, yeah, I won't <laughs> spoil too talk much. About it multiple times. I w- yeah, I won't spoil too much. Definitely say- read it, but just know that it, it's it has ups and downs. It's yes, in my dad's collection, and he's apparently giving me all his Stephen King books. Well, <laughs> l- lucky you. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I, l- I do still love the stand, but what I'm trying to say here is, you know, the stand has got ad hoc committee meetings around this time, and we're getting we're still getting some A plus material, in my opinion. Yeah. As, we're, as we're nearing the end of the book, like we're, I'm, I'm still invested 100. percent Really, at this point of the book. There's some obvious, you know, um, some, you know, Richie imitations, obviously, that I would probably <laughs> say, oh, let's get rid of that. I feel like I but have I, more. I, I'm still yeah. invested 100% at this point. I feel like I have more misery in this section than I did in any other. But at the same time, this is my favorite section right? of the book so yeah, far. Because so much, it's hard to explain. The page count in regards to the other parts of the book, it's not as long. No. But so much happens. A lot happens. Yeah. Yeah. They pack a lot into these pages, I think. I'd have to say a lot for me was that some of my misery were like also my word process. Just like King had this like delicate dance and sometimes he would step on my toes and I'm like, I I need to be done with this part. Like yeah, I yeah. too long or I just the way he would try to evoke this imagery and I was like, fail. <laughs> and other times it's like, yes, I'm feeling like my heart's beating. I'm into this or I like I want it to build up more. Like, don't tell me yet what's yeah. going to happen. So yeah. it's kind of like I had a bipolar relationship with this. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, Dan, any final thoughts here? No, man. I love me some rocks. I love hearing your voice. and I love the Losers Club. <laughs> 
Hey, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. You get paid for that one. I am loving this this bit. Uh, chapter fourteen, the album. This is this chapter is kind of all over the place. Um, uh, it's really, I think, ultimately about Mike feeling comfortable within the club, and also in his own way, sort of helping lead them to the end game. Uh, and I think it's a, I think it's a really cool section, and. Um, I'd say sort of the really big moment here is we get the building of the Losers Club clubhouse, which is not in a tree, not on the ground, but underground. Sounds like a riddle. <laughs> what am I? I'm the Losers Club clubhouse. <laughs> but we also get um, a lot of, uh, I think we get a lot of Mike perspective here. We see him uh, sort of, you know, just forging these friendships. And I, I remember it's like when I was watching the, you know, the new It and even in the old one, too, Mike is just suddenly part of the group. And yeah. I've always struggled with that a little bit. I'm like, we get a lot of good character building with him outside of the club. But, man, it's like, show us that. And that's why, like, I like in the miniseries that we see that moment in part two with Mike and Bill as kids riding around on silver. Yeah. It's a short little, like, montage. And it, 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 I think they added it in for the sole purpose of just being like, let's show them as kids actually being friends. Because we don't see that a lot in the in the film adaptations. So I think... What I love about this section is that we actually see Mike joking, hanging, uh, integrating, like easing his way into the group. And that to me is really cool. Well, not to keep going back to the adaptations, but you know, listen, let's be honest. They're so ingrained. They're oh, absolutely. important mm-hmm. to pop culture as the book is. But I think what you do lose in those adaptations is the pacing. Because, you know, after the apocalyptic rock, rock fight, I mean, Mike goes home, yep. from what I remember. And then he kind of goes back out later on. Yep. And then things happen. He goes home. They meet up again later on. Yeah. It's not the weird succession where everything's over within a day. Right, it feels like you right, know? and it I really just feel like he is gradually becoming f- more friendly with this group of kids who, I guess, ultimately, really actually saved his life. Yeah, and like, and also he's involved in their pursuits, which is building the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Like he's helping them dig, and also in researching and designing the bullets, uh, which end up being slugs. Yeah, but. And you know, he's part of that. So. I think it's also nice that even though, or that how King portray, portrays it, that even though that they all kind of felt this click when yeah. Mike kind of entered the group, there was still had to be that development. Because, like, it's weird. Kids are really good at making friends, and yet at the same time, very particular. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting, like, okay, yeah, we defended you, we helped you, and I feel this connection with you, but, like... I still don't know who you are. And they're still, you can see like the awkward moments where they're filling each other out yeah. and mm-hmm. like Richie making jokes and like either Mike comes back at it with like another joke to show it's okay or like yeah. something or like comes back at him with something else. Same thing with Stan. So you kind of see how like they're feeling each other and testing the, best the way waters. To put it, yeah. yeah. And we see, we see a lot more Stan in this section too. And uh, we get to see him and his weird sense of humor, which I kind of love. He's very self-deprecating. Yeah. He's like, he's just like, he like Stan just seems like kind of a little weirdo. Like uh, he's so quiet at first. And I think that tends to happen with the quiet kids. Like when you actually become friends with them, you find that the reason they're quiet is because they're actually like super weird. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing is though, that, that, that weirdness is often very charming if, you know, you do forge that friendship. But yeah, so uh, a couple other big, moments that we see here um they're building the clubhouse and then mike kind of you know they trade stories they're like well here's our pennywise stories and mike actually opens up about his and we learn a pennywise story that we didn't know about mike before which is that he plays band which is like another cool like hey like let's talk about mike uh seeing pennywise but then let's also give him like another character wrinkle which i Mm -hmm. love which is that he plays trombone in like you know the Nebolt church band which i think is so cool like it's like i love seeing that side of him too because um and you know it's what 800 pages in yeah however much and we're still learning new things about these people which is so cool so um 
but yeah, so he saw Pennywise when he was in the parade, and I actually have a section of that in the cemetery later because it's creepy uh, so as I. hell. So. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've said it, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Horror in the daylight. I know. Just, so we'll get to that, but yeah. Uh, uh, and then Mike also brings the namesake of this chapter, the album, um, mm-hmm. a photo album that his dad's been collecting of dairy history, and uh, and we get sort of a revamp of when George or when. Um, Bill and Richie looked at uh, an old photo and Pennywise showed up. Uh, It's interesting because they, that happens again. But what I love is that Bill is waiting for it to happen again. Mm -hmm. And the one photo they look at, he expects it to come to life and it doesn't, Um, but then another one does. (laughs) And it's funny like that. It is also stopped by this like simple thing of plastic Mm. cheating. I love that. Yes. And like that moment when uh, this might even be in people's cemeteries because it's so weird. But when a couple of them swear that they see his nose press up against the edge of it. That's so cool. Like that's like if if the plastic wasn't there, would his nose and his face have come out of it? Like it's so neat. The other thing I think that separates us from the earlier photo album is we really do see that Pennywise has been there forever. Mm. Yeah. We keep going back every 27 years. He... It, the, the the dress might be a little bit different, yeah. but it's absolutely Pennywise. Well, I actually had a question here, ah. and that's because I'm obsessed in this reading, as we talked about last week, uh, with the idea that Pennywise goes by the name Bob Gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the 1700s picture, the woodcut that um, Mike has, that his dad got, they see a clown, but his face, he doesn't wear makeup. They say, and like uh, Bill has the freaky moment where he says his whole face looked like makeup, and mm-hmm. uh, but it's basically this clown that resembles Pennywise, and they know it's him deep down. But I kind of asked, I'm like, because like last week I kind of posited, I'm like, is Bob Gray, is the whole Pennywise character, was that a guy who was an actual clown, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a persona that maybe Pennywise took on after he killed this person? I, and I, I feel like maybe that's true just because at some point Pennywise didn't come to Earth as a clown, right? He would right. have to like learn – he'd have to learn what clowns are and learn how they can be used to lure in children. So – I agree with your theory, right? Would, yeah. would, would the book have been ruined if during the smoke hole sequence they actually see him land as the clown? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was somehow like the first clown. It was just, oh, God. Like the clown comes, yeah. floats down from the sky like, in like a circle. Clowns. He's got a little horn. Like, oh, yeah, wow. He, he, he walks down the spaceship ramp and like slips on banana peel. <laughs> <laughs> Changed the whole tone for me. Oh, my God. Um, but I kind of love like since the, the clown wasn't wearing makeup in that and they keep mm-hmm. saying like we're actually looking at it. But the thing is, it's like – no, I think you're looking at Bob Gray, who is a manifest, who I think that was a person who Pennywise maybe adopted that countenance of, because that was like way back in the 1700s. So that's my sort of like theory, because in this read, I've especially become obsessed with where is Bob, where does Bob Gray come from? And the thing is, I haven't finished the book yet yeah. in my, I'm, I, I've got probably 150 pages left. So maybe there is something in those final 150 pages that I don't remember, but it's possible. I don't remember. So yeah, I, I think I, I know. And I just think it's I love so it. freaky and weird. So there's I love a scene it. where uh, where Pennywise shows up at the, or it shows up at the circus and he meets Bob Gray and he's like, "How can I do what you do?" And then she becomes <laughs> a, a mentoring story like the rest of it. Just it's like big fish, <laughs> yeah. big fish. <laughs> like popcorn freezes, my friend. <laughs> um, let me ask you a question. Here. Yeah, what does everybody think? What what guys do you think Bob or Pennywise used? Before right. the advent of clowns, then I don't know yeah. if he's been around from, since the dinosaur. beginning, essentially, right? He was <laughs> he's a dinosaur. He's a raptor. <laughs> he's a raptor. Be, I was trying to think of that too because I was like, okay, so if Bob Gray is like the first manifestation that we have visuals of, mm-hmm. and then Pennywise after that, 
what is a yeah your point what was he doing before like what's the creepiest thing for children prior to clowns <laughs> a caveman then, right <laughs> he's just a caveman for like 2600 years plague is just yeah that's running around but then also the, what's the evolution if pennywise was allowed to continue to live like they lost or they thought they wanted he came back 27 years later would he see that like clowns maybe aren't as creepy or like yeah would he choose a different persona like that's neat I, I mean, it's like ca- clowns are pretty old, right? Like clowns are centuries old, so oh, yeah. maybe oh, he yeah. could do it early on. I, I don't know. They date back, you know, before Bob Gray. I mean, these <laughs> things are. Uh, I think. Uh, I think we. It's time for a prequel movie. Mm-hmm. Please God, <laughs> more prequels. I looked you in saying. the eyes with that because I know that would make you. <laughs> Please, mad. it begins. There's okay. actually another really creepy moment. We might have it in the in the cemetery later, but I love it where King sort of um, cuts the playfulness of this chapter because this chapter has a lot of just them existing as children, building, working together. I know what you're talking about yeah, and then suddenly King just sort of has this dead body yes. sail adjacent mm-hmm. to the action of this young boy Jimmy Cullum, and it's a very creepy little moment so that I have undertones love. with yeah. that. <laughs> I know and it's it's very uncomfortable and I absolutely love it uh, and they don't know it's there yeah. and it just sort of really underscores sort of the stakes and what's going on and and the fact that you know they're special because they you know as this death unfolds around them they're still able to be children I think that's so cool any other thoughts um, on chapter 14 the album Dan, what would you like to say about Chapter 14? <laughs> no, I'm just happy to be here. Uh, big fan of the pod. Beep, uh, beep, Dan. Uh, beep, beep. <laughs> exactly. I guess there is an interesting character moment that I'll just throw in really quickly, um, is that we actually see a lot of Stan in this chapter because he, even though he's seen the dead children and he's, you know, had his own encounters with Pennywise, he still is trying to say it's not real, mm-hmm. like, and mm-hmm. he doesn't believe it. And it's when he sees the album and he sees it actually happening. And they actually do capture this in the miniseries because Stan is uh, is saying he's like, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. It's not real, it's not real. And I think, um, and I think that also speaks to the larger themes about um, the ways in which we can, as children, will things. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we we can will them regardless of what is happening before our very eyes. And that to me is, um, you know, an interesting. And I think it does speak to, you know, obviously Stan's fate, uh, which is that he's the one loser who can't really process it and kills himself. And I think that is, um, the more I I read this, I think he processes it all too well. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think he actually believes it more than anybody else, but can't handle it more than anybody else. He deals with this multiple times. Yeah. Like it's the first time. And Mm -hmm. I like that King kind of continues doing that. Like every once in a while we get a little bit of Stan, but we also get that like conflicted um, back and forth of like, is it because he's like on the cusp of like puberty and like the, when they talk about like being an adult versus being a kid and like seeing things and actually believing and having faith in them and the power of faith like is that like he's also dealing with is that why he's going back and forth is that mm-hmm. why he's kind of vacillating between I don't know if it's real or not but also just the fact that he's like you said he believes it the most and that terrifies him because he sees how real and like he doesn't want to believe he wants to believe anything else but that mm-hmm. and yeah. I like that continuous train of thought that sneaks in every once in a while yeah and I like that you know this is an instance where I lo- I think it's this again the I, the structure of this book impresses me the more I read it because I think just one of the many things that we carry with us throughout the book is Stan's death because it's right at the beginning it's it like really literally one of the first things modern chapter yeah 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 and um and to me it's it's a question that persists throughout the throughout the whole book which is like well why did Stan kill himself mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of them didn't and I think that that's sort of 
is what really buoys that character as we keep uh, plowing through, you know, the rest of the story is just like, what was it and what happened to him? And we do learn more as it goes on, but there are all of these hints that we get throughout. So, but, uh, yeah. So next chapter, chapter 15, the smoke hole, this is, uh, I, I barely wrote anything here because this is a very simple chapter in that, um, you know, where other chapters jump around to various storylines here, it is, uh, you know, pretty much primarily focused around this ritual, this old native American, um, means of having visions that they do. They use their clubhouse, they fill it with smoke, they all sit there. And the hope is that they'll have a vision, um, that will speak to their current plight. And it's, and I think that it also is another chapter that really helps to draw the dynamics here. There is, uh, and I think a lot of it centers around the groups, um, the way that they deal with Beverly, mm-hmm. because this chapter is really about, um, you know, in many ways, them struggling with uh, their level of protectiveness over her and allowing her to be, you know, in that culture, in that mm-hmm. 1950s culture to allow her to be, you know, uh on the same level. And it's not out of any kind of bigotry, obviously. It's out of a sense of protectiveness, you know? And and we, also, I was going to say, and also just, like, their desire for her. They're all dealing with, yeah. like, different... <laughs> and, it, and King thinks he's sneaky with this, and I was like, God, you're, like, slapping me in the face with this. Oh, yeah. But, like, each of them deals at certain moments, specifically Ben most of all, like, you get more of him, but they all have their moments where they're, like, inwardly thinking about their whatever version of love they have for Bev and trying to understand what that is and like between like understanding what is protection and what is like allowing her to be her own individual individual person as you said seeing her as an equal not just as a woman and she even says at one point like I'm either in or I'm out you can't yep. just like half ass it with me here because that's not true friendship basically she go, I mean she goes off on yeah. it yeah and I love which that which is great which is a great mm-hmm. little character yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a really essential scene too I think and it really helps um, you know cement that friendship that much more that's the thing too that it's I felt like the, the version last year got really well, uh, mainly due to the chemistry of the cast. Mm-hmm. But uh, that whole idea of like when you're you're hinging your entire story on the idea that these kids are best friends, yeah. how do you portray that? That is such a hard thing to portray. And the the benefit of the book, obviously, and why I would defend its length, you know, I mean, I, I, I think when I was in the early chapters, I was like, man, King, you could have cut this down by this and this. And of course, I do think he could cut it down. But Moments like these, I love having that extra bandwidth, that extra Still on space. board. Yeah, because it's I'm not, like, I'm not I'm not racing to the end of this point. Right. You know? I feel like unlike maybe a book like The Stand or, you know, Insomnia, like these really long books. Tommy that, Knockers. <laughs> uh, that really need to – that could probably be a little bit shorter. Uh, this one, it's like I don't mind the length as much because I feel like it's used really well. Yeah. So, Dan, were you going to say something? You know, well, I was actually just going to say Tommy Knockers. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Smoke Hole, this is a very pivotal, interesting chapter. And um, and the one that I really couldn't shake when I was young because, like, Dan, you said a, a phrase earlier that I thought was really interesting. You You said that this chapter sort of makes it clear what Pennywise is. And so I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. Well, it, I mean, they talk about seeing a spaceship landing. When they're in this smoke hole, it's uh, it's Richie and Mike, right? They're the, the last ones who um, Yep, who Richie are and Mike are the ones who make it. They're the only ones after they do this uh, Native American smoke ritual. To, they essentially have this hallucination that takes them back in time to prehistoric time. And they see a spaceship landing and they know that whatever's inside is going to be big and terrible. And it's, it's the force that ends up being it. Um, 
And it's interesting because that, so it confirms that it is some kind of entity from outer space, but they also confirm that it doesn't have a form that humans can comprehend. Like they talk, and we hear more about that later in the in the file section of the book. But you don't get the idea that like an alien is going to slither out. You know what I mean? So it's it's almost like I don't want to call Pennywise or it an alien, but more of an entity from space. And that that's why I feel like this chapter confirms for me. And like you were saying before, who knows? Maybe it could be interpreted by once people come to the planet um it can be interpreted by them as a, a glamour or whatever else um but that that was my read on it did anyone have a different read though as far as because to me it com- confirms like literally what pennywise is if not where um where they come from well dan when you say spaceship yeah i don't remember seeing an actual craft no yeah. it's something lands oh you're right because yeah. it's it's like the they it's use form just kind of goes there. Yes. Yeah. They not, use oh, that that's phrase. A good point. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Because it's it's more like the the being itself or the force itself is hurtling through the atmosphere and and crash lands, and that's what it is, right? But yeah, yeah no, I, guess I mean that's point. a read on it. The way that I think about uh, it, because you know, being a kid who is uh, versed in the Bible is like uh, it takes yeah. me back to like the book of Exodus and uh the way that God manifested as a pillar of fire in the sky. That's and, what I want to talk about. Yeah. If I if I if I may. Yeah, please because go for yeah, years. Go for it. I, I did did think re- after reading the book that oh oh I didn't know it was an alien because yeah, the miniseries does not touch upon this at all you know <laughs> he's a spider <laughs> but this reread I really did start thinking about it more of a theological or a, a biblical term that this is truly some type of actual like you said and to touch upon what you said Dan it's an entity of evil yeah it's not some alien from Mars that's crash landed you know. And I think that's a more interesting way. For me, it's a more palatable I way mean, of to taking add to it. Your in. point too, because they even say that it's, or I guess he goes into. I can't remember the exact point, but he says it came from space, but basically not from space. Like yeah. the kind of idea is that, like, maybe it, we see it coming down onto Earth, but if we take into account like parallel dimensions or the fact that if this is an evil entity of like older than time itself, then it's just going to come out. It can be coming out of anywhere. Yeah. And just, we're just seeing it materialize as it's touching. Well, you say it's not necessarily from our space and they use the term other space, which is yeah. something we should all keep in mind for part five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's oh, a question. Ah, te- that's um, a teaser for everybody. Oh, oh. <laughs> <When> it, <laughs> is this, if, if it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to, discuss it but is this also the chapter i have the book in front of me i'm trying to flip through it is this also the chapter where they confirm its gender or is that later is that later on oh i don't remember it that gender? i think that's later yeah, because that, i don't remember that, reading it must be that. later then all right i'm not let's not say anything about it then I, I i'm looking to see if they realize that when in this in this uh flashback or whatever but i don't remember i don't recall that being pointed right. out. Unless that's, it, let's see if that that's interesting. Then. Yeah. I'll say this though. I, Dan, I agree with you 100% about this whole idea of it being an entity um, that, you know, at least comes from another dimension, if not outer space and whatever you want to interpret that as. But it's like, it, there are several references uh, where, where Pennywise makes jokes about being from outer space yeah. throughout the book. And I love that. And those were things I never caught previously, but on this read, I'm really catching them. And there is one um, when, and when Bev is leaving Mrs. Kirsch's house in the yes. last one, yeah. Pennywise is holding 
uh, two balloons and it said it came from outer space on the balloon. Mm -hmm. And Pennywise said, tell your friends I am the last of a dying race. It said, grinning its sunken grin as it staggered and lurched down the porch steps after her. The only survivor of a dying planet. I have come to rob all the women, rape all the men and learn to do the peppermint twist. Oh, I hate that wacky whore. But I'll say I do love that section because I love him sort of maybe poking fun at the idea that you can't comprehend what I am, but maybe it'll make more sense if we frame it that I am an alien because he's adopting sort of the language of the movies, like you know. Like teasing them with little bits of information. Yeah. Really, because he, yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's I, a there's I, a moment earlier in the book where he does something similar. I can't remember the exact phrase. There's a lot of mean teasing by old Pennywise. And, <laughs> and there's myriad use of balloons. Blood on All the right. I, this book's been out for 32 years, so I think it's up to the four of us to, to give a definitive answer, no matter what anybody else thinks. Is it an alien or an entity? Well, I mean, an alien can be an entity. Yeah. Is is it a physical alien or is he like the idea of evil that's landed on the planet? <laughs> I'm going to go with the latter. I think we would all go with the latter probably, yeah? Sorry, everybody. I'm going to throw a wrench in there and just say both. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Aisha went with the push for the bit. <laughs> push. I agree with Aisha on that because we, we find out that like we as human beings, we can't quite comprehend what it like actually looks like. Like it's like an eater of worlds, which I think is an alien, but – I, I, I think we're incapable of answering that question because we're human beings. That, that That's my answer. No, we're no, not. I love that. And Dan, think, maybe yeah. you're incapable of answering this question. <laughs> I, <laughs> I will say this, though, that it's fascinating to think of a planet occupied by Pennywise's, like, Ooh. whatever. Yeah, all this, Bob Gray clowns? Can you just even <laughs> imagine? You know what I mean? I know. Well, if It'd not like clowns. planet of Homers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just like I love that sort of concept, but no, this is the question that I've been tossing around in my head: is uh, this whole idea of um, of Pennywise being a uh, you know an alien? I love that idea. I think it's sort of neat because I never thought of it that and way. To when be a hundred percent fair, yeah. we've read this a couple times in our lives. Some of us have at least. I'm sure we'll have more of an answer by the time that part five comes. Oh, out. sure, yeah. or at least we'll, maybe we'll be leaning in more of a direction. I guess. Yeah, I don't know, Dan. Do you, you want to tease something here? Oh no! Well, I was just gonna say I love the idea when you were talking about a planet full of Pennywises. Or it's <laughs> like because yeah, Randall <laughs> hate, Randall hates that wacky humor. I imagine you're just off the, they're like, oh, we're doing the peppermint. Oh, <laughs> how do you dance? <laughs> Let's go to Earth. The whole, the whole, yeah, the whole planet's just filled with them, like cracking wise. I'm and, just like, trying to imagine: are they like scaring each other? I like, know. What do you do? I feel like they would be <laughs> absolutely bored. It's, yeah, it's, it's just that on? gif of Pennywise you can find of him like spinning like the soccer. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that it's all, all the time. All of them doing that all the time. <laughs> Do I amuse you? And they're like, no, we're all the same. No, Uh, you're not funny. (laughs) You're not funny. Um, No, that's it's very interesting. But but this whole I think this section is just fascinating because it gives such a weight to Pennywise. Like like we and that's, I think, the thing that I've never really been able to let go of this section is no other part. I can't think of another like villain or evil in a Stephen King book that um, is rendered as powerful as uh, this is just for the sheer fact that the way that King has Richie and Mike describe how foreign the land is where they manifest, you know, the fact that like, it's, it's not even the past. It's, you know, I think Richie uses the phrase like, it's a go. Yeah, it's a go. It's like so long ago. That to me is so eerie and like uncomfortable. And, and I mean, I know it would have been so dumb for King to like have a brontosaurus coming. God, please. (laughs) What if there was like a hundred pages of Mike and Richie running from rappers? (laughs) (laughs) You get get blue in there. 
Oh, yeah. man. It's so strange that there were absolutely no dinosaurs around. That's all I'm saying. This is before dinosaurs. <laughs> I know, but I I'm love convinced. to think that. I love to think that that's the case. And it's just so neat to me because it really lets – I feel like the ambiguity here is so perfect because it's like like even with, you know, like them using the phrase spaceship but it being described as a pillar of fire and and this whole – and then it creating this giant crater in the ground too. And uh, and the idea that we haven't really seen what its true form is yet but that it's it, it exists and it's built up power for so long and the idea that we can't even comprehend, comprehend how long ago this was. And, um, and that to me is something that stuck with me even from being a teenager reading this book is the is just the the epic quality of the monster here uh daddy daddy may i read it yes please (laughs) yes son (laughs) (laughs) thanks daddy (laughs) it's always been here since the beginning of time since since before there were men anywhere unless maybe there were just a few of them in africa somewhere swinging through the trees or living in caves the crater's gone now and the ice age probably scraped the valley deeper and changed some stuff around and filled the crater in but it was here then sleeping maybe Waiting for the ice to melt, waiting for the people to come. Yeah, good stuff. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that was by Stephen King. That wasn't my take on it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were really. Good. I thought, yeah, I thought you were just riffing. There. Oh, I just had some great ideas. Uh, no, that's great. Um, any other thoughts on the smoke hole? I, I, I think I've got a quote later in uh, one of these sections. Uh, I, 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 a little. Yeah, you yeah, want what to go you first? got? It's the what I liked about this too was the fact of when they talked about the space within the actual smoke hole and mm-hmm. how like there was this like at first there was a little bit of reference to like it seemed like our arms were touching but now we suddenly have all this space oh, yeah. and like the concept of like the expansion and being far away because they touched upon this in the house too of like stretching things out making mm-hmm. you feel more alone and distant and there's a point where like when after it hits or lands on earth and they're trying to get back and my, uh, Bill and Ben, I think, are talking about how like they were trying to find them. And they're like, it seemed like the space was so much bigger. And I think Ben says at one point, he's like, I was reaching my hand out and just shaking and hoping you were there. And like Mike said, or he says, if you're if you hadn't grabbed my hand, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah, yeah. Like that to me, that kind of terrified me a little bit because I was like, so what would have happened if they couldn't have found them? Well, they have like, just been lost forever. Yeah, like how much of time was like slipping? If Were they lost? Like what doorway they were going through? Like that to me, like stuck in my mind. Yeah. Do you think there was some thinny action going on here? Uh, maybe some King's Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have yeah. that later? No. Are you re- oh, okay. Well, That's we can riff point. on that later in King's Dominion. Uh, Dan, final thoughts on the smoke hole? Uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me on the pod. It's always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> this, and, this bit is uh, not yeah, for me. I'll just say, you know, some people say the shit hits the fan, and I say the it hits the planet. That's good. I God. love that. You're fired. <laughs> Chapter 16. Everybody chug your beer. Chapter 16, <laughs> Eddie's Bad Break. Uh, this is, uh, to me, a very uh, – one of the – probably – I don't know. It, it almost – to me, makes Eddie one of the most like well developed characters. Of this yeah, there had been some from earlier episodes I listened to um, some questions about how people felt about Eddie. I think yeah, because at that point he wasn't as well developed. I think as the others, but I think this part really gives Mike this whole part that we're talking about for this episode gives Mike and Eddie yep the most to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I really love this chapter a lot. Just I do everything too. that happens is just really I love it. And I love one it. Of my, yeah, go Dan. What I was gonna say, my, I think my absolute favorite thing in this chapter, um, which of course, quick summary, you know, Eddie. I mean, it's really Eddie gets his arm broken by bullies, and you see the the fallout and how they deal with that. But for me, it's when he 
he finally stands up to his mother in the hospital and he mm. almost becomes like an adult for a little bit. And that, that to me, we, we see the kids get fucked over by adults so much in this, this whole book and to see them finally stand up like that. And, and Grant, he goes back into his meek Eddie self after that. But to me, that was like such a, like a fist pumping moment. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And I think that too, it's, it's, it's almost, um, I don't even, it's not even Eddie being an adult so much, uh, so much as, as I think, uh, uh, really drawing upon the power of his bonds, you know, like the fact that he's been empowered by his friends, because because one of the the running themes of this chapter that I love is this whole concept that grownups are the real monsters, which is a, a, a realization he comes to in this chapter. And it's a and it's a theme that I think is really resonant within the book, because so many of the adults are portrayed as um, either ineffectual or or kind of monstrous, you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. The kids are, you know, the kids obviously do too with Henry, but um, but the concept of I always go back to Bill's dad, Zach, who to me is is maybe one of like the cruelest characters in this book, just because he's so dead, like inside, mm-hmm. and he's so he's so mean to his son in a in a very sort of um, passive way that I find really tragic, and and just the concept, and even though Mister Keen is not a villainous character by any means, and I think he's trying to help Eddie, uh, at the same time, the way that Eddie responds to him and he uses the phrase like grownups could be so hateful in their power sometimes so hateful and that to me was uh was very powerful and he has another another question where he asks how could you fight a grown-up who said it wasn't going to hurt when you knew it was and i think that's something like anybody can relate with because you remember when you were a kid and them saying stuff like that or like going to the doctor or um or even just you know uh, like when your parent like spanks you or something and says this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you, you know, like that kind of bullshit. Well, my parents never said that. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts. <laughs> so I think that um, I think that there it's maybe just like Eddie's most empowered moment, like as uh as a child. I mean, I yeah. think it's more it's more so like finding the real power that comes with bonds and um and maybe being your most inspired when you're at that moment where you don't trust sort of the uh maybe the not the I don't know what the word I'm looking for is the routines and the and the platitudes that come with being a grown-up, you know? He is um he's so empowered here and the way that he's able to stand up to his mom who, you know, casts his friends away once he's in the hospital. Uh, which is to him, I think, at this point in his life, the cruelest thing that somebody could do to him. I think the ambiguity with Mr. Keene here is is really great. Yeah. Because there's actually a moment way earlier in the book where uh, Mr. Keene is watching Eddie um, kind of riding away with his friends, mm-hmm. and they tease that he knows the real truth about Eddie's condition. Yeah. But he almost has a smile on his face. Like mm-hmm. if only you knew what I knew. Yeah. So there's still something here that it is possible that he's taking pleasure in telling him that he's not really sick yeah. as opposed to like being informative or being helpful or being considerate. Like That's he's taking some type read, of a, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I feel like the maliciousness that comes like so naturally to a lot of the townsfolk, like I feel like it's intensified by it. Cause I, that whole interaction it seems so real, so scary to me because it was realistic. Like that's a situation you would be with an actual doll, and mm-hmm. like it, it has no connotations of any magical being like interjecting there. But at the same time, like when they explain how his face kind of stretched and his eyes had like this certain kind of like glint to them, yeah, like it almost seemed like. Dairy and it when the adults are involved in these like certain behaviors that are a little that are hateful and hurtful it's a little extra like it, it's turned to 11 by it and yeah. so that's why it's like for me Mr. Keen scene was like 
I wanted to get out there, out of there with Eddie so yeah. badly. Well, it's like he was sowing discord in a way. Like I think maybe he wanted to see the explosion that would happen yeah. with, mm-hmm. with Eddie and his mom. You know, I kept thinking about how he's got the milkshake there and he's kind of yeah. trying to go for it. And uh, it's just, I feel like we've all been in that type of a situation where oh, we're yeah. about to, we're almost, we almost know we're about to hear a truth that we don't want to hear. Yeah. So I feel, you I know, mean, Eddie's not a dumb kid. I feel like there's a lot of psychosomatic stuff here. Mm-hmm. Has anybody seen that documentary? Uh, Mommy Dead and Dearest. Yes, I have. Yeah, no, I haven't. It's really fascinating. It's basically about this woman who convinced the world and her own daughter that she was tr- just viciously. I mean, not viciously, but just ill with a lot of different diseases. Yeah, incredibly um, deeply ill. Couldn't yeah. you know? Couldn't walk. Um, was it was confined to a wheelchair? Her cancer issues. It turns out it was all a lie. Yeah, and you should watch this documentary. There's an awful twist of events yeah but a lot of that reminded me of this <laughs> it's, though let's just it's say it's a true crime documentary it's a true crime documentary <laughs> it's on HBO. and it's on hbo it's a lot of fun it's a fun sunday night it's a fun sunday night viewing but a lot of that i mean you can read into that here where if you are ingrained if it is ingrained to you at a certain age that there's something wrong with you you're going to believe that there's something wrong with you oh yeah and whatever it takes for that to believe to kick it in whether it is having a shortness of breath if something happens mm-hmm you're going to have it. Yeah. And there's something tragic about that for Eddie. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say uh, later on when he's reflecting on this, he even says like he could have, he could overcome the idea of, what was it? Uh, what did he say? He could overcome the idea of like it being a fake disease, but mm-hmm. he couldn't overcome the fact of like needing that medicine yeah. or that it might possibly work. And that was very interesting for me too. Like, w- like learning about Eddie is that, Maybe at any point in time, he could have stopped using the inhaler and all these medications, but he's also actively choosing, even after all this time, to still, like, be that sick Eddie Mm -hmm. or, like, be that role, which is... Well, he says something in that part you're talking about, which is also something to keep in mind, is it doesn't matter if it's placebo, words don't matter if a thing works. Yes. That's something to definitely keep in mind throughout the rest of the book. Absolutely. And that's why I... When I was a kid, I remember thinking, like... You know, I'm like, get to the good stuff. I'm like, why are we spending all this? Where is it? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, why are we sitting in a pharmacy office with this pharmacist? Why are we talking about his inhaler? And, um, you know, but now obviously I think I appreciate this chapter so much more just because, uh, you know, it, it ties together so thematically, but it also shows the character in such an interesting way. And and I think also when you mentioned the tragedy of all of this, it's, you know, this is, I think, sort of a key moment where that we all have. And this is definitely something we've talked about on the pod before in terms of, uh, of King exploring that moment when youth first sort of realizes that adults are fallible, like that their parents are imperfect and that uh, they lie to us sometimes and things like that. Like that's definitely something King has touched on in his work previously. And here I think this is Eddie's moment of realizing that um, not uh, that adults, you know, they don't always know what's best for you. And they don't, uh, they do lie to you mm-hmm. and they do have their own moment. And like, cause then Eddie has that moment later when he kind of confronts his mother about sending his friends away. And he says, I love you, ma, but I love my friends too. Mm-hmm. I think you're making yourself cry. Mm-hmm. You know, he says that to her. And, and that moment I think is so key cause he's acknowledging, he's like, you are also capable of lying and creating these fictions in ways that are, you know, detrimental to me. I don't, f- I don't believe you. That's and sad. Yeah, that's it's so a loss sad. Of childhood too, when you realize that point in your life that you can't trust all adults, because again, that goes back to um, at the end of the chapter when they talk about faith and power and like mm-hmm. how the strongest thing for a child is faith. And as you get older, you start to lose, you get a breakdown 
there might still be things that you believe in here and there to kind of keep your sanity. But overall, you lose that sense of imagination. You lose that sense of like faith in how what things could be in the world when you first learn that your parents can lie to you or when you first learn that the people that you're supposed to trust don't always know what they're doing. I yeah. or malicious. Or I, I, I love that part of the interlude. And once again, I can't stress enough how there's no way... I would appreciate these interludes as much as I do now than when I, when I was a kid. Like, right. There's no way. I mean, I did, but I think what Randall touched on a couple weeks ago was, you know, the things that stuck out to us when we read it as kids were all like the extremely violent or sexual <laughs> things that are yeah. happening here. The more introspective things we now retain when we become actual full fledged, yeah. quote unquote adults, of course. Yeah. And, well, and I just think like thematically, the stuff that I'm always drawn to these days tends to have to do with um, sort of the, you know, the stark lines that are drawn between children and adults as we get older and and uh, the things that we long for as adults that maybe we had when we were children. And those are themes that I always really respond to. And I think I think it has to do with the fact that I grew up reading Stephen King because that's such a per- pervasive theme in his work, especially in it. Mm-hmm. And um, and and something that I think he captures so, so beautifully in this book and this chapter, especially like, again, this is a chapter that I probably, uh, you know, my second read, I probably skimmed it pretty heavily. Yeah, like, uh, and Eddie's, then, at a, Eddie's at a pharmacy and he's in a hospital room. <laughs> well, especially because you got chapter 17, which is Patrick Hockstetter. Oh, and lordy, I'm, lordy. I'm, I'm amped Lucas, to go Lucas there. But, but before we get there, any other final thoughts on Eddie's bad break? Well, I, I'll say one. Yeah, go ahead. Is that I think that we, we kind of overlooked uh, Henry breaking his arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is actually – you know, obviously a big moment in Henry's development and also in in just this whole idea of the kids versus grown-up situation that this chapter really epitomizes is that uh, is a grown-up tries to intervene um, when when Henry and, and Eddie are fighting and Henry fucking shouts that guy down. Yeah. Yep. He, doesn't he lay his hands on him? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He shoves him shoves back, him, yeah. yeah. And that is that, such a huge moment. Go, Dan. Well, it's funny because – Sorry. Um, like at that part, uh, excellent hit mute. It's, it's funny because I, I agree with you guys in that when I re- read this as a little kid, I was more drawn to the gross shit, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the monsters, the sex, whatever else. But something that did resonate with me at a very young age was the scene of of Henry st- like taking no shit from an adult and how that signified how crazy he was. Like that is a little I, me being a little kid, like. That's even then I knew like, oh, shit, that's a big deal. You know, I don't know why that like particular that almost like seems freakier to me than the arm break does. Oh, Um, totally. Yeah. 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 And yeah, just just like I know I've seen other instances as I've gotten older where where kids have like mouthed off to adults and the adults just kind of back down. And even as an adult, that freaks me out, you know, and I I hope I hope a uh, I hope a teen bully never uh, yells at me because I'll probably back down too. (laughs) Like, <laughs> well, it's like Alan. I'm afraid I'll just start swinging like yeah. a madman. It's yeah. like Mel said. Mel said in a previous episode, she was like, she was like, if I see a group of 14 year old boys across, like walking towards me on the street, I cross the street. Like, I don't want to be around those kids because she's like, like that age, like between like 12 and 15, 16. That is the cruelest age, man. <laughs> like that's uh, that, I was probably monsters. one of those kids. Back in the I know I was too. Uh, you were gonna say, Justin. oh, another big thing we've been talking about. The idea of them being faded together, you know, but there's a really great moment here. I think when, um, uh, Bill's mother is seeing something, maybe I'm jumping the gun here. You know what? I'm going to hold off. Yeah. I'm holding off on this. Okay. I'm going to hold off. I know where you're going. Yeah. Teaser. Teaser. Well, the other big moment in, um, in this chapter specifically is we actually get the moment where they choose Bev to be the wielder of the slingshot because they've Mm -hmm. got the, uh, the silver slugs. Yeah. And they need, they're like, who's going to shoot it? And Bev has the perfect aim. She's reluctant, but she's, uh, she's got the best aim of all of them. So, Mm -hmm. 
Very cool. Uh, let's let's venture into a very dark, dark chapter. One oh, that man, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I know one that I uh, personally <laughs> had to so skim excited. over a very <laughs> large section of because I cannot deal with the poor, poor animals um, getting in trouble with Mister Hoxtetter. Uh, so, Patrick Hoxtetter, this is a uh, chapter seventeen. Um, Man, this is fucked up. And so basically, I think in I'm going to lay out the broad strokes and then we can kind of talk about him um, as a character, because I think there's a lot to discuss here. But basically, um, Patrick Hockstetter is a very weird child who is uh, not a bully necessarily, but kind of pals around with the bullies. We first meet him in the previous chapter. He's there when uh, Eddie's arm is broken. And then we see him hanging out with Henry and Belch and company in the dump <laughs> where they're lighting their farts on fire. And uh, Justin, I'll read this description. Once again, this is not my description, everybody. This is Stephen King's description. Please do it. (laughs) I have to make this perfectly clear. Uh, He's described as a genuinely spooky kid. Eddie had never seen him with anyone else. He was just he was just enough overweight so that his belly always hung slightly over his belt, which had a red rider buckle. His face was perfectly round and usually as pale as cream. Ew. Yeah. Now he had a slight sunburn. It was heaviest on his nose, which was peeling, but spread out toward either cheek like wings. In school, Patrick liked to kill flies with his green plastic school time ruler and put them in his pencil box. Sometimes he would show his fly collection to some new kid in the play yard at recess, his heavy lips smiling, his gray-green eyes sober and thoughtful. He never spoke when he exhibited his dead flies, no matter what the new kid might say to him. That's so creepy. Like him not speaking. He talks about his lips all the time, yeah. too. He I'm, calls them big rubbery lips. This at is one like point. fleshy lips or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. And gross. It's so gross. Well, and um, of course, he uh, the big thing we find out he eventually you know, kills his little brother Avery, oh. and I, and I love and I love that with it seems like with Patrick Coxeter, King is just like doubling down on making someone who's worse than Henry Bowers, you yes. know? and, and he definitely <laughs> succeeds. Think about this: it is constantly using either adults or other kids as conduits, yeah. especially with Henry. And some other people that we'll talk about in, in a future section of it. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of people, I should say. Um, but even he knows there's no way to wield Patrick Hockstetter. Yeah. Mm. Which is why I think he doesn't hesitate to kill him here. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. Because the other quote-unquote psychopaths, like a Henry Bowers, he absolutely uses Henry. And you feel like, well, maybe you could use Patrick, who seems to probably be even stronger. But you can't. There's nothing there. Yeah, he's There's like eerie about that. Yeah, and it's almost like well, you wonder then. It's like did his evil arise from you know the the rotten soil or was he just pure evil? Because like it like Pennywise wasn't able to shape him. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. It's like his his uh, his emptiness and his sort of sociopathy was like was so. Uh, and they they do describe him as literally a sociopath. Yeah. Yes, that he that he lacked empathy for any being but himself. He, which was, and he believes he's the only real thing. Yes, which even is his reality. Yes. Yeah. So was, I was going to say he's, um, what, what do they call it? So, solipsism, solipsistic, like where you think you're the only person on, on the planet. Yeah. That, like yeah. that, I think that concept was introduced to me through this character specifically. Like I'd never read anything like that, um, before reading it. Right. So we basically, um, it's such a strange chapter because we watch, uh, we basically see the, him hanging out with uh, all the bullies. They all leave except for Henry and well, they're, Patrick. Of course, and they're, again, they're lighting farts. Yeah, they're lighting farts. Yep. I think they're I think we pants around their ankles. Their pants are on their ankles. Their dongs are all hanging out. And Wait, I think dongs. yes. <laughs> and I think we have. I know that I have some uh, some quotes later. Oh, from don't this worry. Section. Between this oh, and Davenport's being. <laughs> 
the beans. Can't wait. So, yeah, the, but, uh, but, and then also, so then we get kind of a moment where uh, Patrick starts jerking off Henry. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's sort of just sort of a strange, I don't know. I, it's, I don't know how to talk about that section. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm thinking I don't, about it. I'm like, I, it's yeah. stuck. That's, you know, we were talking about when we were younger, like what stuck with oh, you. It stuck with that me. That stuck yeah. with me uh, big time. Yeah. Dan, what were you going to say? Sorry. Well, I was going to say it's interesting because I don't, I mean, Patrick is definitely like a, a creep and a murderer that is like a child killer at this point and a deviant. And I think as he's gotten older, would would probably be a sexual predator as well. It's interesting because I don't know if they're trying to, to hint that either character is gay. I almost got it more. I almost oh. interpret it more as this like boys experimenting kind of thing. But because it's with literally the two most awful characters in the book outside of Pennywise, it just has this underlying creepiness to the whole thing. Um, especially cause they both go into this kind of weird trance like state, you know, like it almost doesn't yeah. seem sexual. It seems like right. yeah. cult like or something. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. Good. I was, that, that's my question. Cause okay. Also when does anyone know when like, uh, was it Ted Bundy or, uh, John Wayne Gacy? That like, was, that Bundy like was the seventies and then Gacy was what? Like into the eighties maybe? Yeah. The 80s. Yeah. Cause I was like, okay. So part of me was, uh, cause I didn't look it up cause I was trying to stay off of Wikipedia, but <laughs> I was wondering, like, during this time period when you have like people dealing with like homophobia and yeah. like the saying that I mean, still happens now that they're like sexual child predators and like they only like sinful things or mm-hmm. things that are like not not normal. I guess would be considered bad, especially in the 1950s. Like anything done between two men was like real deep closet. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So and then like what Dan was saying, speaking to <clears throat> excuse me, speaking to them being in a like trance like state, and it was fine until Patrick took it one step too far. Yeah, and asked it was like a, you can put it in my mouth. Right, and it was like what for Henry either broke that trance or made that one step too far. Is King trying to say that there's like this homosexual latent or are they just like, again, like Dan was saying, just like experimenting young boys and because like no girl will probably go near them. Yeah. That's well, all they, you know. I think personally that, you know, I think sort of when you are a sociopath, um, sex is a is a tool. As you, you know. know. <laughs> <laughs> the way you said like, well, as a sociopath. <laughs> 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 but I think it's sort of like maybe um, the idea of sex is, is, you know, I think maybe you understand early on that is a way to control someone or use someone. Yeah. And Henry is – we have to remember he's 13 years old, 12, mm-hmm. 13 years old. So it's like the idea of being pleasured by somebody in that sense and he's probably still very new. I mean he may not even be masturbating yet. It's like that whole concept of of feeling pleasure there no matter where it comes from uh, is, is, is new to him. And yeah. I think that's why he goes into the trance-like state. And then um, – Patrick, however, sort of understands that he's just using this and it's yeah. a way to sort of get him under his thumb. And I think that almost in a weird way is what – and then the you know the mouth thing is I think when he probably uh, suddenly realizes and hears his dad you know, decrying yes. maybe yeah. the, the homosexuals and, and whatever and, and suddenly it becomes real to him what's actually happening and, and he's able to look past sort of the sensation that he's feeling, which is probably a very – fresh and new one to him and uh and i think with patrick it's it's you know just a means of of i think it's a moment that that draws a stark divide between the two characters Mm -hmm. because i think uh it shows that even patrick was capable for a moment of of overpowering henry you know and understood a way to overpower henry which in a way makes him more dangerous and so i don't know it's something i was thinking about but i also you know you always you always um i think i think 
the thing that I struggled with was I remember when I was young and I didn't know any gay people. I I think I interpreted this as as very uncomfortable because, you know, I I was not I wasn't raised in a family that did this, but I was raised in a society that demonized hom- homophobia. Mm. Um I grew up in, you know, Metro Detroit and it was definitely something that I heard my friends' parents my parents never spoke to me about it. And yeah. um sexuality was something I didn't discuss with them until I was older. But um but, you know, so I think that I didn't understand uh, homosexuality at that age. So when I first read this book, it was a moment of deviancy. Hmm. And uh, so I – and, of course, it's framed as a moment of deviancy in this in that these are two evil characters. Well, and so I, I think that as an adult, uh, you just worry – I think that it's kind of like – Oh, is this casting? Um, I, it just made me think about it deeper because I'm like, well, is just this trying to show that homosexuality is a form of deviancy? But I don't think that's the case. Here's I what, think that it's yeah. more about the sociopathy and things like that. Yeah. The flip side for me, though, again, you know, as '80s kids, yeah, you know, we've it's, it's, it's a whole different world growing right. up in the '80s, especially your teen years going to the early '90s. And for me, when I read this, I wasn't on part one, mm-hmm. but this is one of the early instances of a quote unquote normal depiction of of two gay men together with, sure. with Adrian Mellon and Don Haggerty, right? Yeah. Good that was, point. A, that was point. one of the first instances for me in pop culture of seeing just two men dating, normal jobs, not some Hollywoodized, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what's the best way to put it? Like, like a cruising William sure. Freaky situation, you know? <laughs> like that. I mean, seriously, though, I mean, it was just... So for me, reading this part... I didn't have, I didn't have the same read in terms yeah. of the deviancy because yeah. I feel like if that was the, if that if the Adrian Mellon part wasn't here, right. and all we have homosexuality of of whether or not they're just experimenting around was this. That's I would definitely have a harsher read on it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good just point. Just a power thing and maybe taking advantage of the fact that it's possible. You know, listen. Oh, by the way, out there, look, none of us are doctors. Okay, we're just you know, <laughs> yeah, we're just this ripping is certain her. things. Dating. We've seen Mindhunter. Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what saying is, and I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's possible that Patrick over time learned some of Henry's behaviors and maybe has maybe either has discovered or has assumed that it's possible. It's possible yeah. right. that Henry is actually homosexual. They did yeah. say that you know? Patrick was cleverer than his IQ. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can learn to, you can be stupid and man, learn to manipulate. Yes. People so it's, it's possible you were saying about taking power. Yeah. And that was his way to take power was to re- reveal something about Henry. He did not want anybody to know. Yeah. That's a good point. Like, uh, especially with, I guess like, I guess maybe it's like because we're so far removed from mm. uh, Adrian Mellon at this point. It's true. But, we're but like you are pages away. I know, but you are right though in that um, they do draw a stark contrast. And and I think when I was young though, it was um, this was the moment rather than Adrian Mellon that really screamed at me because it existed in such a it's such a perverse sort of a, uh, scene. Mm. And I think that. Um, but I think I kind of love what you guys are saying just about this idea of, of Patrick's cleverness, because I think I always remembered him as being um, a violent, dumb character. No, and no. I think sort of rereading it has been fun because it's like, oh, and then I, I didn't read. I can't read the animal violence. Oh, let me read for you. Hold on. No, no. Yeah. I can't read it. I can't Dan, read would it. you like to start? No, I'm kidding. Uh, although I will I say. Mean, we, we, could summar- we can summarize it, right? We should, we should <laughs> yeah. what happens. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, know. It. I know. I read it when I was young and it made me so sick. <laughs> I like. I like was so sick to my stomach I mean, I was less sensitive when I was a kid in, in terms of animals but I totally skipped this and um yeah. but I will say humans are animals too okay let's just say let's just put that out there wait say that again <laughs> we're all animals <laughs> Human, human beings are animals too, Randall. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that it's – I mean I think that though if you look at the ways in which he tortures, there is um, – there is uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? There is um, an awareness and a a method to the madness. Mm. You know what I mean? That shows that he is not just a dumb, violent monster. He's torturing with purpose. Yeah, they even talk about how he's like, after a while he realized, like he understands that he's breaking the rules and there's a certain society thing and he has to stay within them to not be caught. And even then like, when he starts to realize, okay, there's maybe a little too much heat because people are like starting to look at me, he starts going to disease homeless strays after that point or like mm -hmm. a pigeon on the street because like, He's not. Uh, he would have been caught a long time ago if he wasn't clever. Right, you know, right. Like, and I think that's a, a really interesting wrinkle to the character. And again, I love you bringing up this whole idea of uh, of Pennywise almost being like, I got to get rid of this This kid. guy's a jerk. This guy's, yeah, this, this <laughs> this guy's, guy's really, really messed things up around here. <laughs> it kind of makes me think of like Donald Trump with his dad. Like he's going to like take over the business. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, basically we see Patrick um, when he's left alone to his devices uh, Bev and the whole thing is we're witnessing all of this through Bev's perspective, which is I think is also what ups the 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 sort of terror of it all because mm-hmm. she's a young girl um, and she's afraid that she's going to get raped. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I, was like Run, girl. I know I was and also afraid for her exactly. Yeah. And even re- re- no, having read it, yeah. knowing that it's like just you know knowing what I know now as an adult about the way that women feel in society, like you know having become more aware of these things over time. It's uh, it, man, that it's just so much scarier because it really is that whole concept that she's not worried she's going to get beat up you know it's not like if eddie yeah. were there and he'd just get punched and you know it's like a she's worried she'll be killed uh because they'd be like you can never tell anyone but b it's like well what would you do before you killed me and it's a slow oh sorry no no good, good. i was gonna say it's a slow realization too like yeah because and this goes to the fact that she's still a young girl like she knows subconsciously that they're like there are things that boys can do to girls or like because she even says like i know where that's supposed to go hmm. but like it's a slow realization she doesn't immediately kind of start like precluding to the fact that she could get raped she's like it's it first seems like they'll just beat her up and then you kind of get more and she's like i'm a girl oh shit this is what they can do to me and like these are the type of feelings that i feel like towards and then she's also dealing with the fact that she's dealing like I see this guy's dingling and I, Bill has a dingling yep. Yep. and like, I want, Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's a weird sexual fucked up in this. Cause I think a lot of women have to deal with that too, of like you being in these positions of seeing like, I want to say violent sexualized situations. And I feel like at any point a girl has had like a moment of like having to struggle with, okay, like I have some sort of a like turn on, but I not turn on to this, but like it's making me think of something. And like that's fucked mm, up yeah. in your head to. It gets to, all interwoven. Yeah, especially as a teenage girl yeah. trying to figure out, like, oh shit, they can rape me. That's mm-hmm. a thing. So you Man. think King does a pretty good job here of trying to capture that from a, a male writer perspective with Bev? At, at least in this instance? In this instance, I'd have to say t- to an extent to what. Men can actually understand. Yeah, yeah. that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, as, a, as, a, as a male writer trying his best to capture I the inner felt workings, like the slow realization was more of like the male perspective of mm-hmm. it because sure. I feel like me immediately just but even as a young girl when I was younger, like that was beat into me, so I would have automatically just jumped to that thought, like yeah, because yeah. they also made references to her in before, like about her body and her being girl Henry and the rest of them. So like, and our, that was always a thought that that could happen. Like if they ever overpowered the whole group, what would they do to Bev specifically? Like that Mm -hmm. was, so I mean, King did a a pretty, like a good job enough for that. I felt that terror with her. Like it made me relive that terror, but I also, you know, you feel that 
yesterday I was getting off my bike and I feel like I subconsciously turned away from someone so my back was not to them because I didn't, you know, it's right. just like you're a guy, you might be the nicest guy in the world, but like, right. you know. That's interesting. I uh, So, but then Bev witnesses Patrick visit his refrigerator of darkness <laughs> where he keeps his animals <laughs> and uh, what she, but then we kind of get a jump back. And so King kind of has a moment where he says, okay, let's pause the narrative here and get into just how bad this kid is. And oh so we first uh, hear about how he, you know, murdered his young brother, sort of very, not five. in any, yeah. And just like not yeah, at the age of five years old and not even really, you know, understanding what he was doing, but not even doing it in a malicious sense necessarily. He just wanted more attention uh, from his parents and he didn't, you know, he doesn't understand the weight of what he's doing. And then and then King spends uh, quite a long time getting into his uh, animal torturing. Uh, uh, I want to get to one other or back to one other point where we were yeah. saying like he almost was like, yeah, it was because they weren't paying attention. But also the fa- the fun fact of him saying like my schedule was off. Like, yeah, you're messing with my life, sir. And I, like it goes back to that whole idea. <laughs> of like the reality something else if he's the only real thing then he should be able to direct the flow of everything that's going on but the minute avery shows up his whole schedule is thrown off and then he gets this sense of like power and like euphoria of just feeling like everything is fixed and back to normal Mm -hmm. yeah and that at age five who's the i don't know if i was thinking that (laughs) i hope i wasn't one of the creepy the creepiest things in that chapter is how the dad notices like the wet footprint like like the 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 dad you get the idea that he pretty much knows what patrick did and then doesn't say anything about it yeah and i always have if i don't have kids i don't i don't know if you have kids Aisha I know those guys don't but um well thanks Dan I I, I, I just just know you don't I know you don't I know you um, I I would hope I don't I I always wonder if I one of my biggest fears is having kids and realizing that there's a sociopath and like or like one of them is a sociopath like what would you do in that situation Mm -hmm. you you know what I mean because that probably happens a lot like just realizing your kids are a lot worse worse than you think they are and so that, that i'd probably dad, just put a pillow over their head or something oh jesus yeah, how, how old are they when i discover <laughs> yeah <this>? really <laughs> can we have uh, like, like a cool knife fight or something like that or does it have to be like a <laughs> only one man leaves or something of, like that? Uh, just the idea of patrick's dad knowingly repressing <laughs> that really got to me reading yeah, this time around yeah, just really getting the chills so, yeah um and then obviously we have the, the refrigerator full of dead animals which is also scary in it for, and then we have a refrigerator filled with bugs Pennywise uh, leech, bugs. Right? Flying, flying leeches? Are they the leeches from a uh, – well, I'll save that. I'll save that for a – Ooh, <laughs> King's Dominion, yeah. But yeah, that, that – um. I'm just so going to yeah, keep my no. mouth shut because that, that whole section for me is going to be in a different section of this podcast. Yeah, we can we can just uh, uh, glide over and say that there are some kind of flying leeches that leave giant fucking holes in your arm. Oh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, eyeballs it's so thing. gross. Ooh. And we'll get to oh. it. Yeah, and it's uh, – and so – Wait. Big thing I want to say for the cemetery that's after the leeches, but also has to do with Patrick Hawks there. That will, uh, will, will, but I'll, I'll save that for the cemetery. So sweet, yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll save most of this. So uh, you know, basically, Bev witnesses uh, him meet his maker, as they say, and uh, and. <laughs> but she doesn't actually ever see. No, she doesn't take him. Right, like I was expecting her to see like and like have maybe even be confronted by it. Like I see you see me doing this. I was like, expecting that, and I was a little disappointed. But do we remember the? The voice that she hears, hello yes. and goodbye. Right. Well, she doesn't she hear him say hello and goodbye though. To, yeah, she doesn't see him. Right. She like, does he see it. That I mean, to Patrick, I thought. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But she hears it, and yeah. it's her father's it's voice. It's her father's voice. Oh, so right. I think the implication yeah. is that if she saw 
it would have been her father because that's who she's most afraid of. Yep. Which is to, which was to me um, a nice little, little deeply touch. unsettling. Can you also Patrick doesn't actually ever see him clearly, and so I mean besides the bugs being something that he's terrified. Because Patrick's not really terrified or scared of anything, mm-hmm. was that why he couldn't get like a distinct like it could not have a solid? Form? I think so. Yeah, because you like it, yeah, because it keeps changing it, a million different things. I oh, wonder if that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's a good. Well, yeah, point. But he does he does talk about how the the instance in the uh, with the leeches was like the one time he was afraid, right? Yeah. D- doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. D- doesn't Patrick Hockstetter talk about like a, a leech memory? And that's like, yeah. the only time Outside he can ever be afraid. I feel like though, is that like the only thing he was of terrified of? Because then it takes no other form after that besides. The yeah, I think so. It's, oh, yeah, that's it's, really it's all like a coagulated face. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like, like in the Stan miniseries when. Which goes back to your like, whole idea that it's like this dude is too crazy for even me. Yeah, it's weird to think evil thinking that. What if Pennywise just showed up and goes, ah, hard out? Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because hard this out. is this is ostensibly the kind of chapter that you could say, well, you can cut this. Like you don't need this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you if if let's just say a corporation bought this and wanted uh you know to streamline, we need a, we need a tight nine hundred. Yeah, exactly. Not eleven. Like we got to stream streamline this shit. We can easily cut that. But here's here's what would happen. But it's like I know that you would get rid of all the interludes, right? Yeah. And you would get rid of like the, the great Eddie Corcoran chapter. Yep. And you would get rid of this chapter. Yeah. And, and it's like, all so much it. good texture. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it's well, not I, like the I, it's not like the kid in the stand where you can cut that and it doesn't really hurt things. Yeah. Uh it's this is this all feels really essential to the yes. storytelling. Dan, go ahead. Well no, I also I just like I just always get a kick of King like trying to outgross himself, you know, <laughs> to like, like yeah. I just like I love just how much he he tops himself in every sense of the word. Like or, like with the sexuality and the violence and then oh let's make this kid a child murderer on top of that oh, oh man and he also tortures animals i mean and it's but you know why dan i think it's because he's like okay i'll give you guys a whole chapter we're gonna have some kid get his arm broken and told that his asthma medicine's not real are you still with me here's yeah. patrick Oxtetter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. you yeah. are you still awake <laughs> table um, setting here. i i, I keep when you guys talk, talk like pennywise be like i'm out it reminds me of uh I, which Nightmare on Elm Street does Doc can do the song for? Is that five or something like that? Oh, Dream Warriors. Uh, Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is part four. Or part, part three. three. The the music video is oh, for actually Freddy having a nightmare about Dokken. And then he <laughs> yeah. wakes up again and he goes, whoa, what a nightmare. Who were those guys? Like that Incredible. <laughs> incredible flex move by Freddy Krueger. I love it. I love it. Um, final thoughts on Patrick Coxeter. I know we're going to revisit him. Dan, but. what do you think? Um... I hate him. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I want to This guy's say a Patrick, jerk. <laughs> Patrick's great. Uh, the podcast is great. I'm just really happy to be here. We don't uh, care about Pat- the rule of three here. We're going to keep going. The model, Patrick's the model character. We should all, all just uh, – I love all the characters. All the characters are great and all the listeners are great and all you guys are great. And I love this podcast. Damn, I agree, hundred yeah. percent. Uh, chapter eighteen, the bullseye. This is the final chapter of this section, mm-hmm. and it marks the loser sort of uh, confronting Pennywise face to face in the in the Niebolt, the house on Niebolt Street. This to me cements the fact that the seven of them were fated to mm-hmm. do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's a really, I like. There's a really cool part with uh, Bill's mother. Yeah, who sees them all together and says, um, "If I may." Yeah, this is again not my thoughts. <laughs> There was a feeling in the air like static electricity, only somehow much more powerful, much more scary. She felt that if she touched any of them, she would receive a walloping shock. What's happened to them, she thought, dismayed. And perhaps she even opened her mouth to say something like that. But she felt relieved when the children were gone and her own puzzling, stuttering son had gone to his room and turned off the light. 
Yeah, it's, I love. There's some strange like aura going on. I think I wrote that, that down in, in word processor. Yeah. Just the idea of relief. I saw your notes. I decided to, to, to steal it from you. <laughs> steal the spotlight. It's just the a relief though. It know? is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The idea of feeling threatened in a way by, by your own son. Um, that's very interesting. So we basically find them banding together. They mm-hmm. go to the house on Niebold street and they're going to face their fears. And um, it's all seven of them together. Uh, wait, is Eddie there? Yeah. Okay. He shows up with yes. the house. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I had to remind myself that. And um, and so in the house itself, I kind of love it. It kind of reminds me, it takes me back to Salem's Lot a little bit. It's like uh, the Marston house, yeah. you know? Just the idea that King sort of um, paints the inside of this house as being, you know, really genuinely upsetting. Like, I always remember in Salem's Lot when Mark is in the house and he finds, like, photos of, like, men with their guts, like, ripped out and stuff like that. And it's just sort of this random aside. Like, he just finds just that. Like just, like, hear how it's in, I have it in the cemetery. You get that out of your head after that. It's so mm-hmm. creepy. And it's, like, it's like I have this in the cemetery, so I won't say much, but, like, when they find the porno mag, you know? Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. And Bev realizes yes, who it yes. was in the, on oh, the porno God. mag. Very spooky. And <laughs> I know. And it's, like, but moments like that that are just so um, adjacent to kind of the action, but uh, help really, and this is where I think they really fail in the movie last year was the Niebolt Street house um, was more it was the much Kiwi's Playhouse yeah it was like gimmicky it, yeah. it didn't here it's like it's like it is what the house is what it is in the sense that it's one of those houses where you walk in and you're like oh this is where squatters go and where they do drugs and where you know uh, maybe they die you know like they, yeah. they pass out and they die here it's it has that feel but then also King is able to inject like every discarded bottle in the corner with a mm-hmm. certain sense of, of danger and menace. And especially when you're 12 and you're in a place like that, like this abandoned house that is very unsavory just on its own. And then there's also an evil spirit that you know hangs well, out there. As a kid growing up in, you know, like a suburb area that was really growing, I think we might have talked about that in the last episode. We were, we were constantly exploring either houses that were under construction or kind of just on their way out. Mm-hmm. So for me, this particular chapter, I was able to really pull from that, just kind of sneaking around places where I'm not supposed to be. And Pennywise could pop up up any second, you know, of course. I'll always remember when I was a kid, we we snuck into a, an old mall that I used to hang out. That it sounds was, awesome. Well, it, I'm not it, kidding. I, I, it I, wasn't I like a back. big mall. It was more of like um like a strip mall kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. But it it had it was designed in a way where it had like this interior hallway where everything was connected. And we thought it was so cool when we were kids. Then when I got older, it shut down. There was maybe one store that was open, and but most of it was shut down. And there was an old movie theater where I'd seen a lot of movies, and it was shut down. So uh, we knew a guy, and he showed us that the back door was unlocked. And, oh man. Uh, we were able to sne- sneak in because because uh, basically vagrants hung out there. And um, we went in and it was the middle of the day. They talk about daytime horror. It was the middle of the day, but everything was so dark inside. And we went in. I remember it's like we were just finding boxes full of doorknobs and like, you know, it was like and it was this movie theater where I saw stuff when I was a kid and it was, you know, disgusting and empty. But all the seats were still there. Like post-apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah. And then we climbed up into the projection room. Oh, and that's God. that was the creepiest part because um uh, there was like blankets, you know, like people had been sleeping there. Nobody was there, thank God. Okay. But like, but there was um, this, uh, you know, somebody had graffitied on the wall of the projection room, like this naked woman, you know, with like, um, with uh, a giant penis. And it was mm, progressive. Very, very, it was very unsettling <laughs> and, uh, and just a very vulgar image, you know, and I was probably 15 at the time. And it was, 
it was something that was just very disturbing to me to be in that place and to feel like this place has been corrupted in a way and uh, and that I should not be here. And we kind of walked through the whole area, but I was so uncomfortable after going into the movie theater because it really it's kind of like, you know, I think I've made maybe mentioned on the pod before. Just I remember going to like a Chuck E. Cheese knockoff that I loved when I was a kid as an adult, like my buddy and I went there just for fun. And we were like, God, this place is so depressing. You know, yeah. it's like we shouldn't be here. You know, it's like this. This was magical when we were children, but now it's rotten. And it's uh, and to me, that is a very, a very interesting dynamic and something that I think King captures in um, in this in the Niebold Street house. So I have a question, question oh, for good. you guys. Good. Um, and, and I do like this chapter as well. But this is something I've, I've, I felt when I was a kid and I felt it rereading it this time. D- do you feel like it almost has too many endings like this in a weird way feels like the climax to the book, like for when they're kids? But it's not, obviously, as we'll see when we get to the final section. There's like another confrontation with Pennywise. And I, I, I don't know. I feel that way. I also feel that way in the new movie that came out, which I really like. But I just wonder why this couldn't have been the final confrontation. Like, why did it have to be them fighting him once and then fighting fighting it again later on? I, I don't know if any, any you know, of you all that For me, it's hard for me to put this in my misery section, but I understand where you're coming from. Because even looking back, for sometimes I would actually think that this was – the climactic bit when they're kids, like this is the beginning of it. And then they end up going down. Okay. I don't want to spoil too much. I thought yeah. that the ending, the, the, the kid ending and the, and the Nebel street happens in We're a row. Back to back. Like yeah, back, to back literally yeah. it starts at Nebel and ends somewhere else. I forgot that it actually does end. And like, I think as you pointed out where the, the section actually ends with them saying nothing happened for a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. Like this huge thing happens and then nothing really happens again. Like, I mean, I do enjoy the section for what it is, but no, me this too. would yeah, probably be an instance right where if you, if you took it out, I don't think it really affects yeah. the, the climax of the book. I, I think even to the way they say nothing, much, the last sentence being uh, whatever it is, nothing much happened for the next two weeks. Yeah. It almost sounds like it's the end of summer, you know, and that's over. I, I don't know. I just, I've always had that feeling. Yeah. I, I like you, Justin, I don't have any in- issues with the writing itself or even the sequence itself. I, I still think it's suitably creepy. Yeah. I've got some you stuff in my cemetery section here. Yeah. Yeah, it just feels like a little Return of the King multiple endings to me. But, um, or the but yeah. Hobbit trilogy. I feel like kind of, too, it's a little <laughs> bit of uh, with going through the rooms, kind of like a overarching of what's going on. Because, like, you have the one room they go to where the mattress is ripped open and, like, yeah. the black, was it black? Gooish. Yeah. yeah. It's leaking out. And then they go to the next room, which is kind of anticlimactic, climatic, because... It's just, what is that thing called? A moose? or something? Oh, yeah, the moose. Um, I was like, what yeah. the fuck is this about? I was kind of like, this, this is, is this necessary? So yeah. then you have like that drop, and then you go back to the last the last room, which is the bathroom, where you get another glimpse of them top, which I guess it was interesting because it kind of touches again, like how they, they almost can see the true form of it, but they don't quite. But it just seems like that's King's overall march of this book of like having like, this could have been the ending. But we keep going and yeah. nothing happens. And then this is the ending. That's kind of what I felt like. It was he's leading me up for another roller coaster. Well, I feel like we already had the werewolf experience. <laughs> We've yeah. already had the Nebel experience. So I feel like it's, it's a little re- it's a little redundant. I can see, combination. I yeah. can see the redundancy. Yeah. I'll, I guess. But I'll, again, there you know, there's still some stuff here that creeps me out. I mean, don't yeah. get me wrong. I guess I'll just say that. I guess this is like sort like you know when you say that this feels like the ending. I almost feel like maybe this was King's initial idea for the ending. Yeah. And then he's like, no, this mm. wouldn't 
nah, this wouldn't finish it off. You it know? wouldn't, and it wouldn't. And it I wouldn't. think that for me, it's maybe the ending that as readers we probably expected. Yeah. Uh, like a very traditional standoff with, you know, the slingshots, the silver slugs, like the confrontation in the house that he set up as being this evil place. And then I, I kind of love that then he gets really, you know, mild spoiler alert oh they're spacey metaphysical yeah you know once we get into the latter part of it and so i almost feel like this exists maybe to satisfy that the traditional climax that maybe viewers might have wanted this the straight confrontation no yeah no spoilers but maybe like a dark tower situation yeah yeah we're a literal this is this is the ending if you want to be the ending and here's what actually happens you know yeah and And i'll say no more i'll say i kind of dig that idea that just you know he gave us this and it's a very you know it's it's a triumphant moment for everyone for Mm -hmm. the most part and uh but then what we get later is much more complicated and a little bit darker and weirder and um and controversial as we as we will learn next week so um i'd say it's weirder as well yeah it doesn't wrap up so quick like nicely like they do in the movie yeah yes yeah and so but basically what emerges is the werewolf because the werewolf likes to party in this house and uh and bev you know they basically put a slug through its nose which i always thought was a very visceral image i can't say enough about this werewolf in in a good way because i remember uh, there was this video collection that vincent price would introduce it was called creepy classics and he would sit there by a fireplace and introduce these old trailers to old like 50s and 60s movies so i grew up with watching the scene that they're from I Was a Teenage Werewolf, yeah, which this werewolf is kind of supposed to look like, this old Michael Landon, I'm wearing like a Letterman jacket, but I'm a werewolf. It sounds ridiculous, right? Yeah. But as a kid, it really freaked me out. Mm-hmm. So I, I always love this idea that King used that as yeah. opposed to like lo- using the old Lon Chaney Wolfman or sure. any other famous Wolfman. Yeah. Um, lo- is, I love the imagery here. But is, there is yeah. something on the jacket that I'll be oh, talking yeah. about in the misery section. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that's a teaser. We'll get there. To, but I want to do. I, I do. I can vividly see this werewolf as the Michael Landon werewolf, and I love yeah. it. I love the imagery. Uh, final thoughts on um on the bullseye, Dan. I just want to say the bullseye is probably my favorite chapter. <laughs> I mean, among a, among a section of many good chapters, and uh, just great characters all around, and lots of chills, lots of spills, and uh, yeah, I wish all books could be this good. And I, and I just want to thank you again for having me on the podcast. It's just a real treat every time. You should also say that Bev does make contact with one with one of the slugs. One of the slugs misses. The other one does. Yes, it does. It does get into her hand. I think I have that in my cemetery. So um, we're going to wrap up our heroes and villains sort of recap section by talking about the interlude here. Uh, The Mm -hmm. fourth interlude. I think the final the final interlude. Yes. This is maybe Um, my not my favorite, but the psychological implications here are pretty great. (laughs) I know. I think that this this chapter is short. Uh, I love that it begins with Mike being drunk off his ass writing. Uh, he calls it fuck drunk, I think, yeah. which is a very funny phrase to me. Uh, slovenly. Yeah. yeah and um, I kind of love it. But this is maybe probably, you know, the least um, impactful yeah. uh, chapter in terms of interludes. But it has a larger implication and it really speaks to the whole idea. Because I think what of all these interludes have been doing is how it's about it's not just about the old events, the old things, that, uh, you know, Pennywise has had the havoc he's wreaked in this town. But it's about the ambivalence of the town exactly. and, um, and the ways that that the behavior has almost been normalized in mm-hmm. the town. And uh, that's kind of, it is, it, it's almost uh, uh, illustrated here in very blunt terms. Oh, my which God. Which is basically uh, an old man named Egbert Thorogood. Who, For, well, hold on. He pops up in my... In Incredible my, name. In my, he, yeah, but he pops up in my uh, pound cake later. Oh, Lord. Oh, yes. 
Oh my lord. This uh, name is the ultimate name. It me. is an intense name. Egbert Thorogood. He's basically the only person who was alive at a place called the Silver Dollar uh, um, many years before. What's the name of that place? Silver Dollar. Hmm. Ah, Silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi-ho. Silver, Silver Slugs? Uh, s- um, hi-ho, or, Silver. Uh, maybe, <laughs> I, maybe eyes that look like Silver Dollars? Yes. Ah. And, um, I think things are connected here. <laughs> and there is uh, a man named Claude Harreau who basically gets in a union dispute with um, some of the local workers and then shows up in the Silver Dollar one day and just takes an axe to um, everybody, about all the union guys who are playing uh, cards in the back. And he basically slaughters them, like basically dismantles them piece by piece as everyone else in the bar continues to drink and That's talk like nothing is wrong. Part of this whole you yeah. love it? It's yeah. so bizarre. Yeah. But it, it speaks to the, the dairy attitudes of indifference perfectly. Yep. And it's uh, Egbert Thorogood's description when he's basically saying like, well, why did you just sit and let this happen? He goes, ah, it was politics. Yeah. <laughs> it's none of my business. <laughs> Does he say, like, working men don't mix in? Yep. And, like, yep. It'll get worse if we do. Yep. Like, I love man. that. So basically, it's uh, just kind of a short and sweet story about, um, you know, the, as these horrendous acts of violence happen, uh, literally right next to the, the public, they turn a blind eye and just go on with their Well, day, it's fascinating. So. You know, they casually let this happen. Yeah. yeah. But then, like clockwork, at midnight, they all go and, and lynch them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and of course it's the only lynching I think that they said ever happened in Derry, yes. but it's but it was never reported. Yeah. yeah, they just all like the same people. They went drinking at other places. Was it the Bloody Bucket and a few yep. other yeah. places? Great names. Had time to think. Yeah, I was. I was, I was <laughs> and then they had time to like think about it, and but not really think about it. They were mm-hmm. just like drinking and like, oh hey. I think we should probably like kill this dude. <laughs> and <laughs> and at this point, because I think after Hero does the massacre, he even sits down and it's just kind of just like, what him. have I done? Yep. Like, oh, it's well, I mean, I feel like what I love about it is that, you know, it could have just been another chapter where somebody is propelled to an act of intense violence for reasons that, you know, seem insane. I mean, almost like the the when they kill the Bradley gang, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's everybody doing it. But it's more so just these people drawn to committing this act of violence, um, you know, as a community here, we get the added sort of layer that mm-hmm. um, that there is is the the indifference to it, you know, and the then, action well, and the indifference, the indifference. And then but then like the retribution mm-hmm. of that meat that is hollow. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not even like they care. It's almost it's, performative. It's performative is yeah. literally the word I was looking for. It really is. I, like my voice squeaked a little because I got so excited. <laughs> Excitement. It was like, uh, it was, it's performative and it's like, it's almost just kind of inevitable, which is, I think a word I've been using a lot. There's this, this whole idea that like Pennywise, maybe uh, he has these, these um, arcs of, of tragedy that he's kind of unleashing on these people and they're going through the motions. What's you know? fun is I think that like also it took five minutes before anyone actually did anything. Like I wonder if the like the progression they would have just kept probably sitting there drinking all night and yeah. the, the, the sheriff hadn't showed up or whoever <laughs> yeah. the law that's crazy to me or the it's guy crazy. who takes the head just like nonchalantly like literally oh, oh yeah God, I forgot about like that one of my favorite parts I uh, think the layout of these interludes is also just perfect yeah because I feel like if, if you had this one first yeah that wouldn't make any sense right if you had yeah. Um, the Bradley gang's third or fourth, you know, it, right. like the way he's laid it out, it's not right. necessarily in chronological order, but it's it, it, in terms of the narrative, it makes perfect sense. One final thing here as we're wrapping up this section is um, we haven't really talked about the framing devices for all the chapters, which is basically these are all memories that are surfacing as the losers are in modern day, i.e. the 80s, um, hanging out at the library, getting tanked, uh, and they're all recollecting these things. And a couple notable things happen. Mm-hmm. Um 
they're in my misery section, uh, including them uh, finding a certain loser's head in the refrigerator yeah. bits, and bits. Uh, bits and bits and bits. So uh, I think that's kind of the most notable thing that happens during those sections. But rest assured, we will be discussing them in later sections. Uh, final thoughts on the fourth interlude. I'm a fan. I'm happy it's here. Happy it's here. I'm happy just, to I'm see happy it. Happy to, to read I'm it. happy Dan Caffrey's on the podcast. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here, guys. <laughs> my, my, Very when my cool. agent said, uh, Dan, do you want to get back in the Losers Club? I, I said, yeah, I have to. Um, <laughs> Dan, baby, you got to get back in the Losers Club. <laughs> I said, I, then I went on Twitter and I, I, I said, uh, relax, guys. It's going to be great. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so now that we have exhausted our heroes and villains, we have, uh, you know, recap where we were. We're going to take a step back and kind of dig into the pros a little bit, talk about what we loved, what we didn't love, and uh, what made us laugh. And we're going to begin that by uh, joining up with, linking up with Annie Wilkes for a little uh, round of misery. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. You did it. I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling a little miserable. Why? Because I had to read a couple sections of this book that made me feel a little miserable. Hmm. How about you guys? Did you have any? Did you feel some misery? I feel Um, a little misery. I, I would say, you know, most of mine would come, I think, with the, like you're saying, those sort of um, preludes to all the chapters where they're adults and they connect to it. And I understand what King is trying to do there. He's trying to connect the future or the present to the past. And so much of this book is about being able to recall these these old memories. However, my problem with it is that all they do is explain everything that's about to happen and not in a way that's foreshadowing. You know what I mean? In a way that is just like flat out saying what it is. Like, for instance, the smoke hole. Richie says, we saw it come, he says to Mike. We saw it come, didn't we? You and me, or was it just me? He grabs Mike's hand, which lies on the table. Did you see it too, Mikey, or was it just me? Did you see it, the forest fire, the crater? It just feels a little cheesy and expository. And yeah. like, and, and once again, like the adults are always, you know, they're in, a, they're in a library getting loaded, and it just gets a little bit old after a while. I mean, I don't know. It's nothing so egregious as to like ruin a chapter for me. It's just something I can maybe, that I could do without that device um, as we cycle through that. Totally. Did you guys feel the same way? Yeah, I, could, I get that. I, I didn't have that written down in my misery because I think I, I, I've read and seen this these iterations so many times where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. You know, maybe I can't recall the first time I read it if I felt that way, but I don't know. I had, um, I guess, kind of similarly, there's just, it's, I mentioned this earlier, but it's just the bill worship drives me a little crazy. Yeah. And there was one moment that almost felt kind of meta is when they're in the smoke hole and uh, Richie says to Mike, he's just like, it's me and you, huh, Mike? And he goes, I thought it would be Bill. <laughs> I thought wow. for sure it would be Bill. And I wondered if it was like a meta moment because you're like, because I remember when I was a kid, I was like, oh. Like, Bill's not going to do it? Okay. Yeah. Like, that's surprising. And so um, it's just kind of a – but it's it's a recurring thing where everyone is always like, well, Bill's the best. And it just yeah. – it's a little bit annoying. The alliteration's there for Bill's the best, I guess. Yeah, Bill's the best. Bill's the best. Big Bill. Big Bill. It'd be great if we could have a Chris Pratt play Bill. You know, <laughs> I know. Too late. Guy who's always right, just does everything right. Well, the person I always saw as Bill was obviously James McAvoy. He just rolled his eyes uh, for, um, for all the listeners. <laughs> I have a bit of a gripe. I think King has done a tremendous job in terms of you know people and places and years with pop culture when it comes to it. Mm. Something stuck out to me, and I did some research, and I found out I was right, and King was dead wrong. Uh oh. Let me read this little passage here. 
Mike had his thumbs hooked into his belt like Steve McQueen and wanted dead or alive, nothing moving but his eyes. Um, this period takes place in July 1958. The Wanted Dead or Alive TV series did not debut until September of that year. Oh my what is God. that all about, King? Oh, my Ooh. God. You... I almost put down the book and said, I'm not reading anymore. I can't that trust is... this guy anymore. You are fired <laughs> from this trust. podcast. <laughs> all you... my trust is gone for Stephen King. Forget no, it. my trust Forget is gone it, for Justin Gerber because you have officially evolved into the comic book guy. No, no. <laughs> Actually, it was wrong. <laughs> um, do you... ponytail. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Get ready. Uh, Aisha, do you have any misery? Uh... I have to say, okay, so I, I touched on this earlier with the idea of, like, sometimes him taking too long to, like, describe things, and Dan kind of touched on it briefly, too. Another thing I had an issue with was his description of, like, Bev having these, like, back-and-forth moments of, like, shooting and not shooting, and, like, it just seemed like she, he would create this strong character and then immediately, like, peg her down a few paces and make her seem weak and indecisive, and, like, I understand it's... I feel like this is his idea of what a teenage girl goes through, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it just came off like some points I hated Bev because I was like, suck it up. Like you just said you were going to do it. And now you're wishy-washy and like you can't be wishy-washy and strong at the same time. Yeah. Like, it, it, it Her character just seems sometimes muddled to me and seems like his attempt to just... he. I mean, he doesn't know what a teenage girl thinks about. Right. Maybe he asked... Does he have a daughter? He has a daughter. He does, yeah. Maybe he asked her once. Wait, how old is she? I don't know <laughs> once. if he asked somebody, but like, it just seems... Naomi, get over here. Yeah. What's the story with you being indecisive all the time? <laughs> Tell me about this. Well, I'll just say along those lines, I, I have a bit in pound cake as well, but I also put this one in misery. I just think that... Like the way King describes her sometimes borders on. There's always like panties just sticking out of her jeans or something like that. It's stuff like that. And then just this sentence, this sentence, my my eyes just rolled back into my head so far. I uh, couldn't see for a week. Uh, Page 889. She nodded, bit her full under lip. A girl of 11 who was tall for her age and simply beautiful. Just simply beautiful. Come on, dude. This is like an old. They kept being those brief, like. Tidbits though that he kept doing that. I'm like, I get it. There, she's hot. She's a hot young child. I have one. I have one in pound cake. It's 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 unfortunate. And I think also too. I mean, it's like the grossness of of, uh, the gender dynamics, but also like it's just very purple writing. You know, it's just very like all shucks, gee whiz. Mm -hmm. You know, at times he takes that where he's he's entering like the minds of the kids and that makes more sense to me if you're going to do that. Yeah. But if it's just the, the narrator describing it, it gets a little, like you said, Grand, <laughs> a little uh, eye-rolly at times. <laughs> which, uh, I, I always remember the one Mel had from Firestarter where it was like uh, a, a piece of apple pie without a slice of cheese is like a smooch without a squeeze. And it's, like that, <laughs> it's, that, it's that like folksy writing yeah. that... Put that on my tombstone. <laughs> uh, I do have one more misery. Yeah, oh, yeah bring yeah. it, bring it. If we're still going. We are. So this goes to the interlude where... Um, He's describing like the the uh, what the lumberjack barons basically, mm-hmm. no. and how the ancestors had raped the land. And I don't know if just King. This I mean, this makes me think of like a lot of men who don't know like the anatomy of a female and like what the hymen is and what it does and all this other stuff. But he says at one point, let me find it. It's on like page eight eighty two of the first edition. First edition, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers who actually spread the legs of the forest north of Darien Bangor and raped those green-gowned virgins with their axes and peavies. I don't know, peavies? Peavies? Peavies. 
They cut and slashed and stripped timbered and never looked back. They tore the hymen of those great forests open with when Grover Cleveland was president and had pretty well finished the job by the time Woodrow Wilson had, Woodrow Wilson had his first stroke. And then he goes into more of like raping the forest. Yeah, it's like, like a bit much. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's like did the forest bleed and now was able to what really was, like, was that really necessary? Yeah, it was just a lot. I was like, okay, so yes, he raped the forest. They raped the forest. I think he had a dare. He the dare was probably okay. How long is this book going to be? Eleven hundred pages. Okay, I want you to include a Hyman and Grover Cleveland in the same sentence. Go, <laughs> go. That Peter Straub uh, made that bet with him. Oh, oh Stephen, Stephen. <laughs> Hyman and Grover Cleveland. Um, Dan, do you have any miseries? No, but uh, I just want to reiterate again, even when talking about bad parts, I love being on this podcast. So, uh, oh, God. So thanks for This is like the rule, the rule of seven. Uh, do you want to do uh, the werewolf? Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can think too. about Randall when I thought about this part. It's in my misery. Again, too. I can't say I, I really do love the image of the Michael Landon yes. teenage werewolf in like, you know, like a, like a Letterman jacket. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. All right, here's the bit. <laughs> it's a great scene. <laughs> of course, they know this is like the height of terror, by the way. Um, written on the back of its black and orange high school jacket were the words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Justin is losing oh his shit, God. by the way. I don't remember this, but I remember right, uh, the words. Right, they, they, don't right. laugh. because uh, right. um, Wait till the third sentence to laugh, okay? I'll mute, I'll mute right. it. Were the words Dairy High School Killing Team. <laughs> Below this, the name Pennywise, and in the center, a number 13. Like, weird. (laughs) (laughs) So lame. Like, why? Why? put 19 there. That that would be great. It wouldn't be my misery section if you put 19. Ever since I've known Randall, like, you've always had this this axe to grind about, like, the wisecracking supernatural (laughs) entity. Like, that's how I know you and now Justin hates that because you've always talked about how you hate those kind of jokes, like, in in horror novels. I'll always remember. Creepy kids (laughs) making jokes, too. Yes, I'll always remember. Remember the summer? I had a summer several years ago um, where my buddies and I just watched like every Stephen King movie, yeah. and uh, we would just like, and we would watch like the the miniseries. You know, we'd like spend all day watching the Salem Slot miniseries, and um, we. I remember we uh, were watching the Shining miniseries, which God Almighty, what a fucking uh, torturous process that is! But the, I just remember it broke me. Like I think my my real axe, my my axe really started to grind. Was this? There's a moment at the end of that when the guy who like owned the hotel, like because he's yeah. a character in the miniseries, but not the Shining, like the. Um, the Jack Nicholson one, and he just pops up, and it's like he just says something, just kind of like cock a doodle doo, oh, <laughs> like right during the climax of the whole thing. And I'm just like, fuck off, be scary. Well, here's the thing, like that, that can work because I think about the Kubrick adaptation when that guy is standing in the middle of the hallway and goes, "Great party, isn't it?" But that's restrained. That, that, yes, it works. Yeah, he's not it's like, like screaming it's jokes. Sarcastic. Yeah, it's it's almost like dead. You know? Yeah, I think, it's, I think not it's, sarc- yeah. Like, it's not sarcastic. It's not sarcastic. If you're saying an over the top line and, and you're also saying it like, ooh, wee, it's like, yeah. it's not going to be good. <laughs> I have uh, one last one and it's my biggest misery, maybe of this book and especially of the miniseries. I fucking hate this section. Oh, wow. It's, right. uh, it's, it's, uh, when Mike opens the fridge oh, and yeah. Stan Uris's head is inside. Yep. It's a little creepier in the book because it's Stan's chi- well, it's more that it's Stan's child head. Yeah. It's not his adult yeah. head. In the yeah. miniseries, it's the adult head. Richard Mazur. Yeah, it's Richard Mazur and who's a great well, actor. In the, in but the book it's uh, in the book it's like stuffed with feathers. Yeah, right? it's stuffed with feathers. That imagery is yeah. fine, but it keeps going. But it keeps going. And so like I'll just say here, um, 
uh, I'll just read the, the, the first thing. So he opens it. He stumbles over one of the chairs, almost falls, and takes his hands away. It is still there. Stan Uris's severed head behind Mike's six-pack of Bud Light. The head not of a man, but of an 11-year-old boy. Mm. The mouth is open in a soundless scream, but Mike can see neither teeth nor tongue because the mouth has been stuffed with full of feathers. This is fine so far. I know. This would have been okay. Yeah. But then it keeps going. So uh, those eyes roll in, the, in his direction, and the head's lips begin to squirm around the mouth full of feathers. It is trying to speak, perhaps trying to deliver prophecy, like the oracle in a Greek play. Just thought I'd join you, Mike, because you can't win without me. You can't win without me, and you know it, don't you? You might have had a chance if all of me had shown up, but I just couldn't stand the strain on my all-American brain. If you see what I mean, Jelly Bean. All of the six, so on and so forth. And then he starts, uh, of course, getting racist. So um, it is a very, it's just so stupid when you have the head start talking. Yeah. Like, why does it Wouldn't need it have been to creepy talk? if he just saw it for a yes. moment and then slammed the fridge door shut? Yeah, and then open it. That and it's gone. Creepy. Even just do that, or keep it in there. I don't know. It I just kept thinking about how is it talking with feathers stuffed. I know. <laughs> and then it roll. And then it <laughs> rolls like, out. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't trust King to make any sense after my Wanted Dead or Alive TV series error. I mean, at this point, anything goes. You got to let that go. <laughs> if you bring that up again on the pod, you are officially fired. Next week, I just keep bringing it up. <laughs> you, you fired him several times a day. I know. And it's I, that, the, prob- where, where the problem. Firing me? The problem is I don't have the power to fire <laughs> no, you. <laughs> this is an unfortunate democracy we have. No, who's going to fire who on this podcast? But uh, I will continue to fire you in my powerless way. Okay. Um, so that's all the misery I have. Any more miseries? One one bit. One bit. Well, I, I do, of course, have bits Rich, and bits Rich, and bits. Richie's imitations are always there. <laughs> but I will say, this doesn't quite belong at Pound Cake, so I'll, I'll read this description of, of Ben and his weight issues. Um, they arrived at 29 Nebel Street around 10 that morning, Bill riding Richie double on silver, Ben with his ample buttocks spilling over either side of the sagging yeah. seat on his rally. I did write like good alliteration, though. Must you? Other than that. Yeah, must you, Stephen? <laughs> It's he just, loves that. He like loves it, fetishizing Ben's ass. Like, like <laughs> talks about so much in this book. Like the one about like the, the, his hips jiggling like a girl's or whatever. It's, like, it's like really, it's real extra. Freaks out a few times. Oh man. Yes. Um, well, tail. I've heard like tales from tales from another kid or whatever. Like tales from Ben's ass. And it's like, well, oh. now now that Annie has uh, hobbled our our. Uh, our knees with the or our ankles with these with this horrible prose let us hobble our way into mm. the uh the cemetery what's the bottom of the truth well sometimes that is better the person you put up there ain't the person that comes back it may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all Welcome. This is the cemetery. <laughs> Hi, I'm Randall Cole. Here is your grave with your name on it. Ooh, do you? Enjoy- um, this is the section, as you know, because you if you're on the if you're on the fourth episode of a podcast about the book, it you probably listen to the or if you listen ones. to our other thirty book episodes. <laughs> this is where we talk about the stuff that actually kind of scared us, and uh, I think there's a lot here. There's a lot. So, but let's um let's like what was maybe choose your number one, and then we'll we'll, okay. we'll get into the uh, we'll oh. get into the other stuff. Um, who wants to start with their number one scariest I, moment? I've I've got mine. Bring it queued up. If it's okay, yes. ready to go. Okay, I mentioned earlier. Um, this is after Patrick's Hawksetter has gotten attacked by the flying leeches. It's, it's real short, and uh, it, it has emerged and is now talking to him. 
Hello and goodbye, a bubbling voice said from inside the running mm. tallow of its features, and Patrick tried to scream again. He didn't want to die. As the only real person, he wasn't supposed to die. If he did, everyone else in the world would die with him. The man-shape laid hold of his leech-encrusted arms and began to drag him away toward the barrens. His blood-stained book carrier bumped and thumped along beside him, its strap t- still twisted about around his neck. Patrick, still trying to scream, lost consciousness. He awoke only once when, in some dark, smelly, drippy hell where no light shone, no light at all, it began to feed. I had that too. Yeah, that's great stuff. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But that is terrifying. Yeah. So well, that is a very good one. We get reminded of of Patrick's uh, solipsism or whatever you call it, which is creepy. This idea of it trying to be human and possibly be Bev's dad and not being able to is creepy. And then just just the idea of waking up while an animal is feeding on you is just – Oh, yeah. Really, That's really so, so, so I hope to he, I hope to feel it one day. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> my got one? Yeah, that one's mine. I need, a, I need a moment to choose my favorite. Okay. No, that's what I'm trying, I was trying to do. Okay, I'll just uh, – I'll say this is also takes place. This is much more of a visceral experience. It's supposed to psychological. Mm. Our good friend Patrick Hockstetter is back again. This is about one of the le- – the, the, the leech attack itself. So yes. another settled on his right eye. Patrick closed it, but that did no good. He felt a brief hot flare as a thing sucker poked through his eyelid and began to suck the fluid out of his eyeball. Patrick felt his eye collapse in its socket and he screamed again. Ah! A leech flew into his mouth when he did and roosted on his tongue. Uh, anything with kneecaps and eyeballs, I'm yep. out. It's rough. Like yeah. like it was with Patrick Hockstetter, my heart out. I can't deal with him. Um, it's disgusting. I'll go back. I referenced this one earlier, and this was the one. And it, I think almost it's like it's you'll notice a similar maybe motif because uh, I think my my scariest moment last one was in the Kirsch house, and uh, yeah. it had to do. Um, there was many moments in the Kirsch house uh, last week that really freaked me out, but I was really unsettled by like the painting of Jesus that like you know winked or stuck its tongue out, you know. And so here, when they're in the house on Newbold Street, um, this section really freaks me out. In the other corner, wet and swollen, was a digest-sized girly book. The woman on the cover was bent over a chair, her skirt up in the back to show the tops of her fishnet hose and her black panties. The picture did not look particularly sexy to Ben, nor did it embarrass him that Beverly had also glanced at it. Moisture had yellowed the woman's skin and humped the cover in ripples that became wrinkles on her face. Her salacious gaze had become the leer of a dead whore. Years later, as Ben recounted this, Bev suddenly cried out, startling all of them. They were not so much listening to the story as reliving it. It was her, Bev yelled. Mrs. Kirsch, it was her. Mm. As Ben looked, the young-slash-old crone on the girly book cover winked at him. She wriggled her fanny in an obscene come-on. Cold all over, yet sweating, Ben looked away. And I, I think That's what good. really emphasizes the scary part of it is that he's 12. He's a kid. Yes. and Or 11. And it's like... And it's the perversion, I think, that that scares me. And also just the idea that, that Kirsch is... Is 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 sort of you know a part of the Pennywise universe? You know what I mean? I know that sounds stupid. <laughs> like a nun. With yeah, I, I know, right? It sounds stupid, but it's like maybe in a way, like Mrs. Kirsch is like Bob Gray. Like maybe it's a figure, and it's it's an it's it's you know a human manifestation that he has latched onto that was once a person. And that yeah. concept to me, and maybe it's kind of the idea of doppelgangers because doppelgangers really freak me out. It's uh the, that kind of thing is very spooky to me. The idea of somebody's identity being 
being taken away from them and used in a way that is not them. That's one of my biggest uh, uh, horror things. And so the idea that there is this recurring figure that, and like, obviously Bev saw this person years before she encountered her, you know, as an adult. That's very scary to me. The idea that maybe, you know, to quote a true detective, time is a flat circle. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. And, um, very spooky to me. And also, I just, uh, it's the perversion aspect, too. Just like I said last week with the idea that, um, you know, uh, the Jesus statue sticking, st- or the painting sticking its tongue out is a very unsettling image to me because there's a, a perverse quality to it. It's the same way here. Um, it's something that children should not be seeing, and it's being perverse, perverted even further than it already is. So, For so, Mrs. Yeah. Kirsch, I, I also want to point this out. Um, there is obviously, a lot of us grew up with scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah. And the idea of the ultimate "quote unquote" witch version of um, of Mrs. Kirsch with it appears in one of the scary stories, the illustration by Stephen Gamble. Oh yeah, and I think it's this woman. It's it's one of the stories about a witch, believe it or not. But the woman, I think, has like wooden legs or wooden arms, but mm-hmm. she has like this kind of hollow looking face and just like these black eyes that look like buttons. Yeah, that like rings kind of a swan. That is what I think of when I think about Mrs. Kirsch, and that's what I think of when I think about this girly mag. Yeah, the illustration. Ugh, so Great gross. Stuff. Um, Aisha, have you figured out your number one? No, because you guys have taken most of mine. <laughs> and then the other ones are kind of some of my um, cemetery scenes would be like the concept of uh, when he, when like Mike is getting attacked by Henry, like the interactions yeah. with Henry Bowers. I yeah. feel like sometimes like the build up for it, like it was so, because it's so real, because this is an actual person doing this to them, as mm-hmm. opposed to like this evil entity that like can change forms and is magical it was almost more like more terrifying and like um i don't have the partic- the specific pages marked for them but like each time there was like for mike um for eddie like when it got so close to like being psych- like i'm going to die or even bev when she's hiding in the car and like he's right there is just enough to, that was enough for a terrifying sequence and yeah. for me sometimes realistic horror or yeah. like realism mm-hmm. is yeah definitely way more terrifying well we can all connect to it it's Definitely. harder to connect. It's easier to connect to that than to connect to you know some some entity that came from other space. Yeah, and we talked about that a, a couple episodes ago. The whole concept that one of the real the the powerful aspects of this book is the way that it can balance um, uh, the supernatural terror with the terror that is inevitable just in daily life, and uh, very very creepy. Um, other things that you want to share. I've got a lot of little hot spots. I do too. I'll, I'll throw one out. Uh, the whole Patrick Hoxtetter death is fucked up, but yeah. I'll say that this one line uh, just kind of seared itself into my brain, which was after he gets bit by one of the leeches, uh, it had made a painless dime-sized hole in his arm. And I literally was reading this, and I uh, our change jar was nearby, <laughs> and I took a dime and I put it on my, my arm, and that's bigger than you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. That is a large hole in your arm. Ugh. And like when you think about a hole in your flesh like that is so unsettling to me and so uh definitely one of that whole death sequence um it still was as creepy as it was to me as it was when i was a kid i'll, I'll close out the hoxter sequence i think with just another bit of violence here he could feel the leech inside his mouth swelling up and he opened his jaws because the only coherent thought he had left was that it must not burst in there it must not must not yeah but it did <laughs> oh i heard that Aisha. <laughs> um patrick ejected a huge spray of blood and parasite flesh-like mm. vomit he fell down the gravelly dirt and began to roll over and over, still screaming. Little by little, the sound of his own screams began to seem faint far away. Just disgusting. Woof. Uh, Dan, do you have any more? 
No, I was just going to say just the, the idea of the leeches like exploding once they're full of this blood. And yeah, the one in the, in the mouth was just like, ugh, ugh. to me. I'll, just, um, I'll say that. I'm trying um, to think if there's any. It's, it's so funny because I think with, in terms of horror, Patrick, the pa- Patrick Hoxler chapter just like overwhelms everything else in this book for me. <laughs> like, or not the book in this uh, section. Like even though there's lots of scary stuff, when I think of like what's eked me out, that's – that's just like always what's going to come to mind, you know? Right. Oh God, there is something else What's that? that really shows how much of a psycho Patrick is. It's after Henry leaves mm-hmm. oh. and Bev watches Patrick go over to the fridge and says, um, Oh God, this is disturbing. Patrick began to hum and sway back and forth in front of the rusty old refrigerator. I was, yeah. <laughs> like that, isn't that, just think about that. Let that sink in for a second. It's very strange. Even when he just stood there Ugh. with his pants still around, like, he like took the time to put his books together in his bag and put it around his neck and he's still bleeding from his mouth, but he's not really caring. And then his pants are like, he didn't, uh, that just like was kind of a little disquieting as well. Cause it's yeah. like, he, I don't know. I feel like I'd pull my pants up first. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God. That, that's the difference between us and Patrick Hoxton. <laughs> well, I wrote down the sequence where they describe him killing his younger brother. I'm not going to read it because I don't think I need to. No. It's, uh, yes. it's really disturbing. But I'll just say that there is a line where they mention that as he's killing it, uh, it farts. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like that's that a makes thing. it real. Well, yeah. Right. And like Dan and I, we've joked a lot about like King's use of farts in books. Uh, but in I'll, this very book. <laughs> well, yeah, but in this section specifically, I'm like, oh, that's the one where like it just really makes it pathetic and sad and disgusting and horrible. Well, yeah, like, and it, it, it's funny because I was debating whether to put that in Pound Cake, and I'm like, no, because it's actually really effective. And, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, morbid. So yeah, yeah. I have like I we mentioned this earlier. Aisha, you were talking about um, the distance that grows in the smoke hole between them, and I found that very unsettling. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that. Um, you know, uh, Richie looked around. He saw the circle of stones with the fire smoldering within, fuming out clouds of smoke. Across the way, he saw Mike sitting cross-legged like a totem carved from mahogany, staring at him through the fire with his smoke-reddened eyes. Except Mike was better than 20 yards away, and Bill was even farther away on Richie's right. The underground clubhouse was now at least the size of a ballroom. And, like, ballroom, yeah. that's massive. Yes. So that's, like, a very – that was a very uh, striking moment for me. Does anybody – we mentioned this earlier, the first time Mike sees Pennywise – Oh, yeah. I thought I'd I've wrote got that it. down. Band. Yeah, bring it I've got it. This is okay. great stuff here. I thought I'd written it So, down. again, Mike's in the marching band and uh, or in a marching band, and they're going down the street, and this happens. Somehow, that clown looking at him, smiling his red smile, his white-gloved hand penduluming slowly back and forth, that had been worse than having Henry Bowers and the rest after him. Ever so much worse. And then Mike explains. Then we were past. We marched up Main Street Hill, and I saw him again, handing out balloons to kids except a lot of them didn't want to take them. Some of the little ones were crying. I couldn't figure out how he could have gotten up there so fast. I thought to myself that there must be two of them. You know, uh, both of them dressed the same way, a team. But then he turned around and waved to me again, and I knew it was him. It was the same man. Yeah. Oof. I hate that. It's so creepy. Well, I hate it in a good way. Yeah, I hate it in a good way. It's very creepy. Um, I, I also was really responded to when they were in... Um, the Niebold Street house and they were basically fighting Pennywise and when Pennywise emerged from the drain pipe I just thought this was a good piece of writing that also kind of got under my skin a little uh, something exploded out of the drain pipe yeah, Ben is. trying to recall that first confrontation later could only remember a silvery orange shifting shape it was not ghostly it was solid and he sensed some other shape some real and ultimate shape behind it 
but his eyes could not grasp what he was seeing, not precisely. And I guess, like, I love the the use of the word shape. He uses it three times, like, mm-hmm. boom, 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 right after each other. And I actually think it's really effective in that way. I'll say the if people are reading along for the first time, and I should keep that in mind. Oh, shape, yeah. Shape, shape. Yeah. I dig that. And so, uh, and then I also had, we talked about it a lot earlier, but just the whole, the, the concept of the, uh, murder and the silver dollar and, and everyone just kind of sitting idly by, you know? And, uh, but I love the quote here from Thorogood. He says, um, uh, we knew, but it didn't seem to matter. It was like politics in a way. I, uh, like that, like town business, best let people who understand politics take care of that. And people who understand town business take care of that. Such things be best done if working men don't mix in. It's just like, it's like the, the justification there is like so unsettling. I have, um, some really interesting, they kind of just, I think it's a deliberate gloss over about the inner workings of Eddie's mother here. Um, she hugged him, but carefully, so as not to hurt his broken arm or dislodge any loose bone fragments so they could run an evil race around his bloodstream and then lodge in his heart what mother would kill her own son with love. And Eddie hugged her back. Hmm. Like, what is going on in her mind? Because this is after she's, Been Eddie's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote fought back. And yeah. I wonder if she's, would actually like be willing to kill her own son too, you know? It gets just kind of lost. Of like saving him though, like from himself. Yes. Type. That's even creepier. Good stuff. Well, now that we've uh, sufficiently freaked ourselves out. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Oh, you got more. Well, here's the thing. I know you don't like to talk about animals, so I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> Thank you, I know, please. I really held back. But I appreciate we did talk that. about I appreciate it. Mike's dog mm. and oh, how yeah, Mike's Mr. Mr. Chips, Chips and how he dies. That is tough to read. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to read some? I do not want to read it. Okay. Not even I want to read it. Yeah, but I it, it. It's, it's a torturous, so sad, it's so and yeah. don't get me wrong, they highly effective. They it again but, later, though, too, when they talk about the beans, and he's like, and that's when he actually came up with the idea for the beans yeah. on Sunday night. And I'm Ugh. like, oh, I, I almost got over Mr. Chips, and now. Yeah. No, I'll say that. Um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I appreciate uh, you, you caring for my sensitivities. In this and my sense. own, to be fair. I cried yes. a little bit for it. Oh, yeah. and the description of Jimmy Cullum's body is disgusting. Oh, that's anyway, very gross. We've talked about that. So. Yeah. But yeah, uh, there's a lot of effective horror in the section. I, I, I liked a lot. I agree. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts, final cemeteries. Do you want to dig up any more graves, Dan Caffrey? I think it's time to get the hell out of the cemetery. Uh, frankly, I'm Lock feeling up. a little spooked. Um, I think we're going to have Hank the Pit lead us out of the cemetery. He's not, sorry, not, 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 I, don't, I don't do a good bark, dog bark. He's, uh, Barks. he's not barking. <laughs> Barks. Uh, let's, let's venture into a place we like to call the word processor of the gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing, whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Hello. Welcome to the Word Processor of the Gods. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn. Oh, wait, I'm stuttering Randall Colburn. Well, during these episodes, at least. This is where we highlight good writing. And I have one that I want to throw out right away because I love it. It's a piece of dialogue from Moose Sadler. Hmm. Maybe my favorite character in all of it. I'm just kidding. But he has, uh, I love this line. 
um, when he's getting the shit kicked out of him in the rock fight. Somebody hits him in the back with a rock and he goes, you hit from behind, yellow belly. Moose screamed, you fucking dirty fighter. I just love that phrase. <laughs> you fucking dirty fucking fighter. Dirty, and fighter. Dirty, dirty fighter is one word, which just makes me it just makes me happy. And uh, yellow belly is also just great 50s uh, insult. So um, that's all. I want to kick off with that. That was the only one I that's had. It. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Pretty cool book. <laughs> um, anyone want to take the reins here? What What really landed for you? Um, it, uh, this goes back to the Mr. Keen, the Mr. Keen encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie wished more than anything else that he was down in the barrens with his friends around him. The thought of a monster, some great monster lurking under the city where he had been born and where he had grown up using the sewers and drains to creep from place to place. That was a frightening thought. And the thought of actually fighting that creature, of taking it on, was even more frightening. But somehow this was worse. How could you fight a grown up who said it wasn't going to hurt when you knew it was? Wait, you might have actually read some of that earlier. Uh, just that line. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, I remember that part. But how could you fight a grown-up who asks you funny questions to obscurely ominous things like, this has gone on long enough? And almost idly in a kind of side thought, Eddie discovered one of, this, one of his childhood's great truths. Grown-ups are the real monsters, he thought. Mm-hmm. When did you dis- – so I'm, that's, that's all I'll say here. I was yeah. going to have the whole other section, but there's a lot to talk about. Oh, it's – I mean that's – that's to me some of the most effective writing in this whole section. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote all that down. It's it, and to me, it just really resonated because I feel like it's not only a running theme in King's work. It's it's just sort of um, I think a really key part when people in literature write about children. I think that's always that pivotal moment, and it's capturing that moment, the disillusionment, that moment when you take the step out of pure innocence and uh, you realize that you know you're not always in good hands. Is uh, I think such a pivotal moment in any kid's life, and I think. Uh, more than any other King book, I think is uh, he captures that here. Uh, like this and the body, yeah, that body as you well. Know, yeah, I think, yeah. but I, my thing has always been, you know, as a as a child, you're told that everybody grows up, but then as you grow, as you age, you realize everybody grows older, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily grow up, right? Right. And I think right. that's a that's a that's a harsh truth to realize when you get older. Good shit, Aisha. What do you got? Uh, one of the it's a little bit longer, but that's okay. it's at the beginning of the smoke hole. Where uh, Richie's kind of, he's postulating poetically about something I fucking don't know. I think it was like the energy of childhood. Um, and it's, Richie had felt mad, exhilarating kind of energy growing in the room. He had done cocaine nine or ten times over the last couple of years. At parties, mostly. I'm going to skip ahead <laughs> just a little bit because he goes and talking about doing drugs as a disc jockey. But he talks about this feeling was pure, more of a mainline high. He thought he recognized the feeling from his childhood when he had felt it every day and had come to take it merely as a matter of course. He supposed that if he had ever thought about that deep running aquifer of energy as a kid, he could not recall that he ever had. He would have simply dismissed it as a fact of life, something that would always be there, like the color of his eyes or his disquieting hammer toes. Well, turn, that turned out to be true hadn't turned out to be true the energy you drew on so extravagantly when you were a kid the energy you thought you would never exhaust itself that slipped away somewhere between 18 and 24 to be replaced by something much duller Hmm. something as bogus as a coke high and he goes on and talks a little bit more um and then he goes into like kind of like the idea of childhood that wonderment that imagination slipping out of you slowly like balloons losing their air and I mm. like that balloons are constantly referenced, even when it's not just Pennywise holding a balloon. Yeah. Um, but like that just like point of there where like they talk about how they're worried that magic has slipped away from them and they're not going to be able to be strong enough to defeat 
it at this time. And Richie kind of touches on that whole idea of like, and this goes back again to what I was talking about earlier, where they talk about faith and power. Like as you get older, you start to lose that sense of imagination, that sense of wonderment, that sense of faith, those things that give you power and hold you together. And you're kind of just left as an emptier, duller shell sometimes of yourself. Yeah, I have that section too. And the line that really hits me is the final line, which Mm is, uh, um, it all happened while you were asleep, maybe like a visit from the tooth fairy. Yeah, like like that just that just kind of sums up all that. Like to me, that uh, that beautiful writing that come came before it, which I also had written down as well. Uh, Dan, what do you have? Uh, yeah, I actually pulled something from that the scene I mentioned with Eddie standing up to his mother. It's just a really small piece of dialogue, but I really love it. Um, so Sonia is uh, is asking him, "Did you know it was just water?" Talking about his medicine. And then, uh, or sorry, he says that to his mom. And then he says, because if you did, Eddie said, still frowning, if you did know, I'd want to know why. I can figure some things out, but not why my mom would want me to think water is medicine or that I had asthma here, he pointed at his chest. When Mr. Keene says, I only have it up here and point to his head. I just really love the dialogue there. Um, yeah. I think King, you know, every now and then he might fall into kids being somewhat precocious, but I just, I, I like seeing Eddie being a little man right there and, <laughs> and, and sticking to the man too. So yeah, that, that's kind of the epitome of, me of why I love that scene. We talked a little bit earlier about how King can maybe kind of border on the saccharine, yeah. but I think this actually does read really well. This is about friendship. Um, after Eddie's arm is broken, he's in the hospital room and he thinks, you know, these were his friends and his mother was wrong. They weren't bad friends. Maybe he thought there aren't any such thing as good friends or bad friends. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just friends, people who stand by you when you're hurt and who help you feel not so lonely. Maybe they're always worth being scared for and hoping for and living for. Maybe worth dying for, too, if that's what it has to be. No good friends, no bad friends, only people you want, need to be with, people who build their houses in your heart. Yeah, I love that. that That's great. Was my next one. Oh yeah, we have literally. I've had the same ones too, which I think just speaks to how like powerful these are. How powerful those sections are. I'll say that I have one from the rock fight because the rock fight. I love so many sections, but man, it's like this was such a. I think you used the phrase like fist pumping moment. It's such a fist pumping section for me because they he really allows a lot of the losers to to get one up on the bullies yeah. and that's such so satisfying when it's done well and i love this one with ben because we literally watch henry carve an h into ben's stomach so it's like um just this section here i love bellowing ben uh ben ran for henry bowers who looked around in time to see him coming but not in time to sidestep henry was off balance ben was 150 uh trying for 160 the result was no contest henry did not go sprawling but flying he landed on his back and skidded ben ran for toward or toward him again and was only vaguely aware of a warm blooming pain in his ear as belch huggins nailed him with a rock roughly the size of a golf ball (laughs) henry was getting groggily to his knees as ben reached him and kicked him hard his sneakered foot connecting solidly with Henry's left hip. Henry rolled over heavily on his back. His eyes blazed up at Ben. And that's where I stopped it. But it's like just the the satisfaction of that moment. And he really captures sort of the adrenaline of it, too. Like there's a great section where um, where it's almost like a Terminator kind of moment. Uh 
Bill is like basically uh, storming Victor and Victor is just ch- throwing rocks at his chest and they're just like bouncing off of him. Superman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's like, cool. thro- and he's basically just like, no, you fucked up, bro. It's like Hulk Hogan. You know, I love it. It's uh, it's it's such cool shit. So I love so much of that rock fight. But that those moments, I think, is where they really kind of, uh, you know, physically dominate the people who like make their lives. Hell is a very, uh, you know, cathartic and uh, powerful experience so any others for you guys i'm getting uh, i'm getting hungry but I, but maybe we don't have to uh, yet uh, uh, <laughs> beep 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 danny because i've got some more from eddie spaghetti if that's maybe that's the food you were thinking of eddie <laughs> uh i was thinking something a little sweeter uh, <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get a little heavy before we get in the sweet all right so uh all right. get that fork out and speak just uh, twirl around your spaghetti because i got another quote from a boy eddie bring it this is actually a really nice line, too. Like <laughs> we just, like, ruined it with here. that intro. Just probably ruined the mood here. Wait for, like, some more of those beans to start making farts come around. Um, Eddie thinks about this. Poor little Eddie, you know. I, I think it was the first real pain I ever felt in my life, he would tell the others. It wasn't what I thought it would be at all. It didn't put an end to me as a person. I think it gave me a basis for comparison, finding out that you could still exist inside the pain in spite of the pain. Yeah. Mm. Get it, Eddie. Go get it, spaghetti. Indeed. Aisha, any more from you? No, I'm. I'm gonna. I had a few, but like, they kind of. We stole them all. No, I was. I was reflecting on something that like uh, Mike's dad had said, hmm. and I was kind of looking at it in terms of not just like Mike being. It's. It's right after he gets the shit kicked out of him by. Um, oh God, that's his part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the dad is talking to the mom, and she's kind of upset why like he hasn't gone and done anything, and so <clears throat> basically. Will, Will, the do- the father says it all comes back to, and the son hates the three of us because of them and because of his father, because his father has also told him that hating Nick mm, is what men are supposed to do. I'm not going to say it this time, you guys. Uh, it all comes back to that. I can't change the fact that our son is a Negro any more than I can sit here and tell you that Henry Bowers is going to be the last one to take after him. Because his skin's brown. He's going to have to deal with it all the rest of his life. And as I have to deal, as I have dealt with it and you have dealt with it, why? And then he goes into some examples. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like, I took that not just in the sense of like him being brown, having to deal with that as an African American, but also like them being losers and like they're going to be picked on, taken or advantage of or like bullied because they're different and like they'll. Like you were saying earlier, your father kind of says said that to you. Like mm-hmm. they're gonna, people are gonna bully you. And I'm kind of diverting a little bit from what your dad said in the sense of like people are gonna bully you, and you're gonna have to find a way to deal with it. You hope that you have friends who are there with you mm-hmm. to make it a little bit easier. But like fact of life is, people are gonna be shitty to you. And yeah. <laughs> like I kind of took that not just in the sense of like the, what exactly is paid word for word, but also in the grander sense of like the losers. Even like as adults, they're getting kind of shit on, even though they have like these great executive roles and power. Like Bev, Eddie still has his wife, who's like his domineering mo- yeah, mother. Mm-hmm. You know, they all have their thing still bullying them. Sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's good stuff. That's interesting. That's a lot of spaghetti, but I saved a little room for dessert. Mm. You know what? I'm I want ready. my sweets. I want <laughs> Dan, little Danny wants his sweeties. Danny wants his sweeties. <laughs> uh, and I think that, you know what that means. The oven, the oven is dinging. The pound cake is ready. Let's, 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 let's go get some pound cake. All you've been talking. Everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. 
He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mom. Cut a slice. <laughs> Gross. All right. Welcome to Pound Cake. Pound Cake for four? Anybody? Uh, yes. Um, I've got a few. I'm going to kick things off. Uh, this is actually, and the funny thing is, I was like, I swear I wrote something down for Mike and the Parade. I actually have Mike and the Parade and Pound Cake, but it's not because I don't love the section. I do love the section. It was just, it's, it was a similar situation where there, I had one last episode where there was some good writing and then King just like added right at the end of some good writing, like, and then he smashed his balls. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, so I have one here where it's like, um, uh, uh, Mike is is in the the thing and he sees Pennywise and he says um, he remembered how the flesh of his testicles had begun to crawl, how his balls had how his bowels had suddenly felt all loose and hot, as if he might suddenly drop a casual load of shit in his pants. But it's like it's not even the <laughs> shit in casual. his pants; it's the fact that it's casual. <laughs> like, there's no way it could be casual. And then Wait, I just start you, thinking like about casual Fridays and there's casual shitting your pants. I mean, I just it's the idea of casually shitting is very funny to me. Yeah. I just shit. And I yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would liken that to like, you know, you wake up, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go. Yeah, you're seeing a clown and you're marching in a parade. There's, uh, there's nothing, nothing casual, casual about, about that. that. <laughs> what if, if Kieran abnormally shit his pants? <laughs> <laughs> Off the cuff shit his pants. Just the phrase casual is what made that whole thing. I absolutely loved it. Um, any, any, uh, what, what, what slice of pound cake do you have? Um, I'm going to read Edgar Thurgood mm. as, <laughs> but I, want you, I can't do a good main accent. Yeah. So I'm going to try to do, like, imagine if he was a prospector in the gold rush or something like that. That'll work. So here we go. He explains his uh, sexual exploits to Mike Hanlon. I only realized after I spit my spunk in her that she was uh, laying in a pool of jism, maybe an inch deep. Stuff had just about got the jelly. Girl, I says, ain't you never care for yourself? She looks down and says, I'll put on a new sheet if you want to go again. There's two in the cupboard down the hall, I think. I know pretty much what I'm in. I know pretty much what I'm in until nine or ten. But by midnight, my cunt's so numb, it might as well be in Ellsworth. <laughs> that was a combination of every European dialect. I loved it. And this and the and the South. No, I had that too because just the concept of stuff had just about gone to jelly uh, oh, is one of the most gosh. disgusting sentences. I had to read that three times to make sure I like To make sure you fully got like, it. What is a cupboard? Like, oh, cupboard. Okay, yeah. Uh, I wasn't concerned about the cupboard. I was thinking about jizz turning into jelly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Well, obviously. obviously. Uh, well, it's so like, much I, of it that there's like an extra layer. Like, come <laughs> on. Gross. Christ, like, like, oh, seriously, it's just like, tone it down, Stevie. Great, That's a great bit stuff. much. Uh, Dan, it's what do you got? All right. Uh, if it's okay, here, let me readjust my reading light. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to read for a little bit. Dan's like bit. putting his glasses on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, like, I'm going to read for a little bit just because I, I think you need to read like the whole shebang for it to get funny. Um, Bring it. And it's, you know, there's a lot of pound cake to be had with Patrick Hoxetter and the, the jerking off and whatnot. And, and that's all valid. But uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm focused on beans. Uh, <laughs> so here, here we go. Specifically Davenport? Here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Davenport beans. Okay. Henry knew what resulted from consuming large amounts of baked beans. The result was perhaps best expressed in a little ditty he had learned at his father's knee when he was still in short pants. Beans, beans, the musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. Uh, King's Dominion. The more you toot, the better you feel. <laughs> then, then you're ready for another meal. And then they talk about Rita. I won't actually no. I'll keep reading that because that's pound cake. Rita Davenport and his father had been courting for nearly eight years. She was fat, forty, and usually <laughs> she was fat, forty, and usually filthy. Henry supposed that Rena and his father sometimes fucked, although he could not imagine anyone squashing his body down on Rita Davenport. Uh, oh, <laughs> and then we all right, so we. 
So, so we, we hear how she makes beans. Uh, Rena's beans were her pride. She soaked them Saturday nights and baked them over a slow fire all day Sunday. Henry supposed they were okay. They were something to shovel into your mouth and chew up anyway. But after eight years of eight years, anything lost its, its charm. Um, all right, and then uh, let me skip a little bit. Um, the three. That, this chapter is called Davenport's Beans, Chapter Five. <laughs> Uh, when she when she turned up Sunday evenings in her old green DeSoto, a naked rubber baby doll hung from the rearview mirror, looking like the world's youngest lunch mob victim. She usually had the Bowers's beans, Bowers's the Bowers's <laughs> beans steaming on the seat beside her in a twelve oh. gallon galvanized steel pail. The three of them would eat the beads that night. Rena raving about her own cooking all the while. Uh, crazy Butch Bowers grunting and mopping up bean juice with a piece of Sunny Boy bread, or simply telling her to shut up if there was a ball game on the radio. Henry just eating, staring out the window, thinking his own thoughts. It was over a plate of Sunday night beans that he had conceived the idea of poisoning Mike Hamlin's uh, dog, which that's sad. Um, <laughs> and but which would reheat a mess of them the next night on Tuesdays. And, we're getting like scheduling on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. <laughs> we'd take a Tupperware box full of them to school. By Thursday or Friday, neither Henry nor his father could eat anymore. The house's two bedrooms would smell of stale farts in spite of the open windows. Butch would take the remains and mix them into the other slops and feed them to Bip and Bop, the Bowers' two pigs. Rena would, would like his not show up the following Sunday uh, with another steaming pail, and the cycle would start all over this again. Is be, now, this is going to be coke, like coked out king. Oh, right exactly. oh my god this is like the re- the reason oh I, my god. I like that passage is because like i i'm fine with him mentioning beans and it's the source of the the farts they're lighting and uh <laughs> and, and, and it inspires henry to kill the kill the dog so it does have some plot significance but the amount of detail he goes into about beans it reminds me of in uh in waiting for guffman um uh the when the narrator is just like "Ooh, beans i know <laughs> i love it big fat hot juicy beans <laughs> Well, there's then, and I, I just whenever I think beans, I think uh, Billy Madison. And he's like, "Hey, Mister, guess what I had for breakfast? Beans." And then he makes like he makes a, a farting noises. So fucking funny. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Thank you for indulging me because because it, like it just goes on so long, and you're like, "Why are you talking about beans so much?" And, then, <laughs> and, and the fact that he has to do the whole the whole beans beans the musical fruit, which we already know, like everyone in the world knows that rhyme. Like, why do you have to spell that out for us? Anyway, that's singing it. I've got no more pound cake. I, I, uh, that's all the bean cake I've got. Oh man! Uh, somebody wants to go next about bean. Anybody have any more bean comments? I don't. I have, got. I got a great bean. Bit I don't have bean content. Oh, I, I would love content. your bean content. Can I? This is this is a bit and a half by King here. Bring it. This is such a joke. I can't believe <laughs> this should not. I can't believe this to make its way into the movies. Another wise terrific moment in the book, obviously, is the chase when Henry and the boys are chasing after Mike. You know, it's intense, right? But right before all that happens, do we know what? What triggers Mike into understanding that there are people following him? Oh, oh does somebody oh, fart? Farts, yeah. They oh, were 25 yeah. yards behind Mike and Henry. <laughs> behind Mike, and Henry was just opening his mouth to give the order to charge when Moose Sadler mm-hmm. set off the first firecracker of the day. <laughs> Moose had eaten three plates of baked beans the night before, and the fart was almost as loud as a shotgun blast. <laughs> he missed like a freeze frame, like. Duh. Get him! That is hilarious. Um, A shotgun boy. I have a firecracker of the day. I have a similar one. I mean, well, it's not bean related. Well, kind of. It's when they're lighting farts, and I just loved the way this was phrased. Um, So Bev is watching, and she goes, 
Belch Huggins had his back to her. She observed the fact that oh. Belch had an extremely large, extremely hairy ass and half hysterical giggles suddenly bubbled up from her throat like the head on a glass of ginger ale. I just love that because it's just extremely large, extremely hairy ass. No flowery language from Belch's butt. God. Uh, Aisha, yeah, do you have any no poetry for Belch's ass? Oh, oh God. I'm dying. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> What, what is? Mm, oh, sorry, go ahead, no, Aisha. Sorry, I want to hear what you have to say. What were you going to oh, say, Dan? I was just going to say it's funny how th- this is actually one of the most sexual chapters of the book, but the sexual stuff is all kind of disturbing. Yeah, and, it's not and, funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing okay. funny about any <laughs> the sexual I've stuff. That it, it, all the panic <laughs> is coming from all these like asses and farts and, and beans. <laughs> and amazing. Anyway, sorry. Uh, one of the things I had was when they're describing Patrick. Um, and it's for the view from one of his teachers, Mrs. Douglas. And so he says, and Mrs. Douglas had discovered it was best to keep him away from the girls because oh. of his Roman hands and Russian fingers. What does that mean? Russian? It's Russian fingers? Is that what it is? Russian, like the country. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? I think it's like your hands are roaming and like, oh, my fingers are rushing in, right? Oh. Ah. Well, that's what Dan's teachers would tell him. That's what Dan's teachers would tell him back in elementary school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Danny's at it again. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, My other one was going back to our best friend, Edgar. Yes. Oh, Edgar. Uh, Let's see. What was it? Page 883 for my edition. And uh, it was when they were talking about kind of like the changeover of um, old dairy until new so what's left of their supremacy 70-some years after Egbert Thoroughgood spent his love with a dollar whore in a spermy Baker Street bed? <laughs> spermy. Yeah. Spermy. Spent his love, first of all. Like, why are we Spent his love. love? Oh, my he, God. He always uses love and strength, the, the, the word love in odd ways throughout his whole I need to use spermy as an adjective yes. more. I'll always Our remember spermy, after uh, in a stand. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Dan. No, no, no. Whenever, uh, whenever he would describe, there's a part where he's talking about uh, Fran and Fran and Stu's night, and it just says after love. Yeah. Or maybe they meant maybe they meant like after watching Netflix's series Love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have one one last one here, and it relates to the way that King writes Beverly, which just kind of again, it's very eye rolly, but this one was especially much, and I had to put it in pound cake. Uh, she was standing fully upright, her head cocked to the left, her eyes wide, her hair done in braids that had been tied off with two small red velvet bows, which she had bought in dailies for a dime. Her posture was one of total attention and concentration. It was feline, lynx-like. She had shifted forward on her left foot, her body half-turned as if to go after Patrick, and the legs of her faded shorts had pulled up enough to show the edging on her yellow cotton panties. That's what I was talking about. Below right? them, yeah. below them, her legs were already smoothly muscled, beautiful in spite of the scabs, bruises, and smudges of dirt. Smudges. Like smudges. I'm watching a dirty discovery. I day. know, and like, she's 11. Stop it, right. Stephen. And then Moose Sadler set off the first firecracker of the day. Feline. Lynx-like. <laughs> Feline. It's like ASMR. Feline. Yes! Links on. So many things, and then when he talks about her shirt being open and like, yes, like, if she's clutched it closed. We're not seeing any breasts. Like, why do we keep? It's so weird. Ugh. Um, okay. so that's all the pound cake that I had. I'm, I'm stuffed. I'm stuffed. Uh, Dan, okay. any more for you? Or are you stiff no, with beans? No, just yeah, I'm stiff with beans and also <laughs> stuffed with beans too. So, <laughs> yeah, no. Davenport's finest. This was oh, maybe the God. spermiest pound cake we've ever yeah. done.
Uh, like I feel like I'm laying yeah. in an inch of whatever the hell it is. Of jelly. Uh, brush my jelly jizz. <laughs> jelly jizz is a new flavor from Smuckers, by the way. Oh, my God. We are moving on to we need to hustle our ass out of pound cake and out of the kitchen and into King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Here we are in King's Dominion, yet the scent of pound cake lingers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the scent. Um, I actually gross. didn't. I didn't have a lot here. Not a lot. Yeah. Um, I, the, the only one I had I, was. Actually, I think Justin and I have the same one that has to do with beans. Oh beans well, why fruit. don't you guys do it? Bring it. Um, yeah, you, you do, it, Justin. Of good. course, beans. Beans are musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you too. That's of course from uh, one of the first chapters of the Gunslinger. Yep. <laughs> it's true. It is. No, you know, it's, it's true. true. Yeah. Uh, the, the Raven says it, right? Yes, Isn't the yes. Raven, the Raven uh, says it. Uh, very cool. Uh, <laughs> very cool. Very cool. <laughs> very cool, guys. Radical. Aside. Way to make Thanks, some Tommy. shit up. Very no, I'm cool. just kidding. No, uh, I had uh, – there's a mention. There's a lot of mentions to Haven in this. Yeah. But there's a specific mention to Haven's Big Engine Woods. And Big Engine oh, Woods yeah. is where uh, Bobby, at the beginning of Tommy Knockers, discovers – the Something, piece of some, metal protruding yeah. from the ground that ends up being a very important part of the Tommy Knockers, and it is in Big Engine Woods. So that was uh, that was literally the only one I had. I've got something. I else. also well, I, I was just joking, semi joking. Those leeches are those the leeches from uh, the body? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Probably not. But, Probably uh, the same ones. Uh, Bill calls Pennywise a whore master, which King loves to use that word whore master. He's used it before. I thought that was pretty funny. That's more of just like a, a kingism as opposed to yeah, a yeah. true relation. Uh, there is something I absolutely have to mention here, though. Yeah. I, I think actually you mentioned it way earlier on. I don't know if we had recorded yet or if it was the beginning of the podcast nine hours ago. Um, this is after Eddie's arm breaks. He says, um, he had a chance to admire the way the July sun glinted off the flecks of mica in that old sidewalk. He had a chance to note the remains of a very old hopscotch grid that had been done in pink chalk on that old sidewalk. Then... For just a moment, it swam and looked like something else. It looked like a turtle. Ah, ah. A turtle. Yeah, yeah, the turtle. Yeah. I'm telling we'll you. Be, uh, we'll be hearing some more of the turtle, I think. Um, we will. Later on. I actually on. do have one more. I actually had this section in Cemetery because I was I, – I, I get freaked out by um, – architecture that on the inside you know like is different than it looks on the outside that's always like a creepy trope to me and uh so i loved uh you know the way Nebolt house like even though it might have been a little gimmicky at times uh the way that the rooms would sort of expand mm-hmm. and the way every you know the architecture didn't make sense with the way the house was was yeah. structured but uh the way it's phrased here felt very dark towery to me um so uh ben shook his head the voice was gone That was an important thing, a good thing. Yet outside, he had understood. This house was a special place, a kind of station, one of the places in Derry, one of the many, perhaps, from which it was able to find its way into the overworld. There he's phrasing it as saying, like, Pennywise, this is his way into the world. But the idea of calling it a station and um, and just the phrase that it's a special place Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the fact that, you know, and he says the stinking rotted house where everything was somehow wrong. It wasn't just that it seemed too big. The angles were wrong. The perspective crazy. And uh, I think it, it just reminds me of something like the the club from The Breathing Method. Yes. Uh, something – Oh, you yeah. Know, which, storytelling which, club. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. was very much posited in the breathing method as kind of, um, you know, a dark tower sort of, uh, you know, passage between where worlds. We? Yeah, where are we? And so I think that 
I don't know if the Niebold Street House is one of those kind of places. And I guess I found that very intriguing. Yes. So nothing definitive there, but something that at least struck me as very Kingian in terms of the larger universe. It's room 237. Room two, yeah, I'll say that's a room 237. I so. have something here that's not that's almost its own section, and I have to point it out. Bring it in. Because you know how I criticized King earlier. Yes. For blowing it with the old Steve Queen TV series. You're fired. Well, I'm going to give him some credit here. Okay. The apocalyptic rock fight took place in either July 1st or July 2nd. Mm-hmm. Butch Bowers, here's a quote from the book. Butch Bowers was settled in for the afternoon on the back porch, a quart milk bottle filled with exquisitely hard cider by his rocker. His Philco portable radio in the porch rail. Later that afternoon, the Red Sox would be playing the Washington Senators, a prospect that would give any man who was not crazy a bad case of cold chills. The Red Sox did indeed play the Senators that weekend. And the Red Sox and uh, lost the second game on the second. So that's actually good. Uh, good research there, Stephen King. All right. I, he's we were back. He's back in my good graces. Back in, okay, hey, comic, he, punk, comic book guy. He gets guy. his. Uh, he gets his socks right. <laughs> he knows when it socks. comes to baseball, he ain't messing around. Faithful. One might say he's faithful. He's like Billy Crystal. He went too far. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, that's all. I've, that's all I've got. Any though. other dominion we got here? I, I'm just looking forward to uh, to the to part five. Yeah, yeah. We're heading there next week. Aisha, anything? Oh, I don't have any kings dominion. I'm like, this is like my weakest part. Guys. Right. I know. I understand. I understand. Sometimes, uh, I get it. Dan, you're good. I'm good. Uh, and just one more time, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, yeah. Being on the podcast. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, no, a firecracker just went off. A firecracker oh. just went off. Moose. No, so, uh, so that's it for this episode. This was so fun. So much good stuff in this episode uh, and this section. Man, but things are going down next week. Uh, yeah. Next week we're doing part five, The Ritual of Chud. And being – I'm not on the episode, but being somebody who's reading it and uh, halfway through, god damn, it just moves. Yes. It's so good. It's so freaky. It's so good. And um, so I think that's going to be a must-listen episode. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for for being thank here. Thank you, guys. It's been I'll be back uh, for adaptations. Excited to be on again. Oh, this yeah. is Dan's last book episode too. But yeah. you, are you yeah. on the adaptations, Dan? Yeah, I'm on adaptation. Cool. I believe. I well, we'll that. welcome you so. back then. Uh, Aisha is going to be back next week, yes. as well as Mel and Justo and, and uh, uh, Maco and your your Mel Mac, Mel Mac, Mel Mac. Mel Mac. Co- the combo's hey. back. <laughs> hey, Pat- hey, Patrick, stop torturing Elf. those cats. Leave them for me. <laughs> Give Elf. me the cats. Oh, Mouth. Elf, the cat's been in the family for a long time. <laughs> Oh, please. Leave us with a question. Yes, oh, yes, please. yes, please. Please. Something like So we can red. stop doing ALF quotes? Yeah, I was going to cut that real short. Right <laughs> Mercifully. Hey. Uh, my one question was, and it came at the very end of the interlude leading into the last, the next chapter, hmm. the last chapter. Uh, so basically they're talking about like it and how he's been here all this time and how he has this like developed this, um, uh, this human emotion of revenge. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting for something that's supposed to be, like, an evil entity or, like, older than time mm-hmm. and, like, not human or alien or whatever we're, we decided to call it. And yet, at the same time, it has these human emotions of yeah. fear and revenge. And is that stemming from the being on, like, Earth with people for so long? It's kind of adopted some of these traits or... So that was just a question or a thought I had that I wanted to leave. I think that's something good to leave to the whole audience as we yeah, go into definitely. this last part. That's a really so good question. So you're definitely you're onto something here. Yeah. Ooh. Very cool. Keep that in mind. Let chew on that a little bit until we're back next week. And um, yeah, this has been a blast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, long days. And pleasant nights. Pleasant nights, baby. Well, I got some hot friends. I got, I got some hot friends.
This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>